would like to welcome you to the third season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. In this podcast, I consider it my duty to share the sometimes gory, but always honest truth hidden in the craft beer industry, mainly that it rarely operates like an actual business. Margins are trash, distributors are garbage, and capital expenditures are a raging dumpster fire. But many of the people involved in all these organizations are true badasses. So I will autopsy deceased breweries, retailers, and distributors. I'll talk with wineries, breweries, and distilleries, all in the search for ways to lure out profitability and best practices for you to use in your career to be better tomorrow. In 2020, I released a book about my journey of failure and the lessons it forced me to learn. My hope and the hope of our guests is that by telling all of our stories, we'll be able to teach you and teach each other what to avoid and how in the hell to avoid it. To make the industry better, to make the people happier, and hopefully, to even make the beer taste better. So thanks for joining us and being part of this journey. If you feel inspired, I would appreciate a like, a share, and a rating. You can't even imagine the difference that it actually makes. Today's guest got bitten hard by the brewery bug back in 2012. You know, back when there were less than 2,500 breweries nationwide, and you could still convince yourself a little bit that there was going to be room for one more. Like many of us, he thought, start small, build it up slowly, grow incrementally over time. Steadily invest in growth, recapitalize, and add market share along the way to success. His brewery did gain a strong following and even won tons of hardware from contests. But he still got swallowed first by the massive growth of his massive brewery neighbors and then by an oversaturated industry overall. He made great beers, great friends, and left a lasting impact on the San Diego craft beer scene. Join us as we discuss what it's like to build a dream and watch it metamorphosize into a nightmare right before your wide eyes. This is the story of Alex Van Horn and San Diego's intergalactic brewing company. It's honest, raw, and even inspiring in its own way. And I'm honored to be able to share it with you. All right, Alex, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. And thanks, most of all, for giving a sun-drenched fuck by a crooked rhino schlong about helping my guests be better in their careers. Thanks for being here today. So I'm interested in talking to you today simply because you've been there. Like like me, you followed your dream, you opened a brewery, and then you had the opportunity to hold it as it died in your arms. The only difference is you got to do it in my favorite city in the United States and one that I've been trying to convince my kids to move to repeatedly and they say no. And so as soon as they leave, I may come drink your beer wherever you're at at that point. But before we get into the story intergalactic, I want to spend some time just get to know you. Like what did you do before you were a brewer? How did you grow up? What what makes Alex tick? Oh, yeah. That's what makes me tick. The question of, of the ages. <laughs> yeah, so I, I grew up in San Diego, so I had that going for me. Maybe my, it was preordained to do this since it's such a big beer town. Graduated high school and went to Arizona State where I studied architecture because that was kind of always my thought. I was always into buildings and, and structures, design and planning and stuff like that. So I went to school for that, graduated, came back to San Diego, went to graduate school for urban planning because I thought, that's cool. Let's plan where buildings are supposed to go since... I wasn't good enough at designing them, I guess, to stick around with that. It's a whole other story. Yeah, I was in graduate school after coming back from Arizona where I discovered some craft beer. Coming back to San Diego is really where I got into craft beer while I was in college or graduate school. It took a couple years of working as a coffee shop or barista, paying the bills while going to school, but that's kind of the, the, net, the itch got me to homebrew and then to eventually open my own place when I was 25, so it was I didn't really get into a career or anything before I it just became my career. How'd you get into homebrewing? Was that just, I like beer? I, I'm a little older than you. And so even for us, it was more of a, there was you know very little choice for us, but you lived in Beertown, USA, right? So what? Uh, how does a guy like you get into homebrewing in a situation like that with so much free access to amazing beer? 
Well, it started with a friend of mine who was doing it because he's uh, he likes that type of stuff. He makes his own like ammunition too. He's, anything he can make himself, he's going to try. And so he did it, and I'm like, well, this, he's an idiot. I can do this. He's yeah. really, really smart. But I'm like, oh, if he can do it, I can totally do this. So I bought a little kit at Home Brew Mart, which is Ballast Point, with another buddy of mine. Cause, so he bought a kit, brewed it, actually came out pretty good, drinkable, which is is, is, is something. We went to Home Brew Mart, which has a tasting room for Ballast Point in the back. And then I'm like, oh, wait, there's one closer to my house. That's super cool. And then I met another friend at a, at a job who like was getting into it. So we started brewing together. It was I brewed twice in a year. And then all of a sudden, it was once every two weeks for like three years. Yeah. Make the same was, thing. It was overnight. As soon as I found Anthony, who actually came to work for me at the brewery for a while, and we started brewing together, it was just like, that was all. That was our lives. We were just like constantly brewing new beers, trying to clone beers learning, came beer judges, uh, all that stuff. Did you guys make the same recipes over and over and like kind of dial in what you wanted to be and what your shtick beers were? Yes and no. I think there were a couple of beers that we couldn't readily get that we both liked. For me, it was, it was Kilt Lifter from Four Peaks in Phoenix, or Tempe actually, because they couldn't get Kilt Lifter in, in California. So it was a Scottish 80 shell. Like, nobody really made one in San Diego, maybe like one or two places. And it was all like draft. It was all available. So I couldn't get cans of bottles of it so i i started brew, i would brew that regularly for 2009 2010 like it just wasn't readily available he started brewing that and th- those are kind of the two beers of everything else was just like let's try this let's put this in there let's you know how much ginger can we put in a beer before we don't want to drink it anymore stuff like that how much ginger can you put in a beer before you don't want to drink it anymore a couple ounces and five gallons and then <laughs> it's just like ginger juice ginger goes a long fucking ways <laughs> It was really great for cooking after that. Right. You, you marinate something in it or use it in a sauce. But yeah, outside of that, you don't want to drink that shit. So at what point you're brewing with your friends, you're making all kinds of stuff, you know, obviously on a small scale. At what point did you convince yourself that you were ready to go pro? Because I was, you know, going to the tasting rooms and brewing at home, I was really getting into the scene and just getting to know people. I started hanging out a lot at Mike Hess Brewing in Miramar with their top room manager. I was there. Basically, I was working in the morning as a barista for eight hours. So I get in at like 5 a.m. So I was done by like 2. They opened at 3. So I would just like cruise over there, hang out for a couple hours. So I was just really enjoying the culture. And I'm like, I would love to get into this. So in that area where I lived, there was maybe like six breweries at the time. So it was like Alesmith, Ballast Point, Mike Hess Brewing, and a couple other. And nobody was hiring. And the one place that was hiring, their bar manager said, I don't hire customers. I know you too well. And I'm like, oh, that's fair. So it, it was kind of a, it was a couple of years where I was trying to get in the industry and couldn't get into it. But I, I knew that like, yeah, that's the culture. That's, that's the place I want to be. Cause I just, I like hanging out in breweries. So it, it wouldn't feel like work. I feel like, you know, maybe that was kind of naive, but that's what I felt. I, I know people who feel that way too. Come in like, oh, I'd love to pour beer here. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a job though. So, you know, you got to, can't just sit here and drink with your friends on the other side of the bar. So did you get a job in the industry first or did you? So kind of, <laughs> this is, this is, this is the, the, like the, uh, the dark ages of my craft beer career. I, I, I tell everybody about it, but I think everybody forgets, but there's a pretty infamous brewery now in San Diego called Wet and Reckless. So and I haven't heard of this one. So you're going to have to give me some background, but go ahead. Okay. So Wet and Reckless was this, this guy also Went to Mike Hesbury, saw their nano set up, and Mike had a blog where he's like, yes, I opened a nano brewery. And so this guy's like, hey, if these guys can do it, I can totally do it. I'm a bioengineer, and I've been homebrewing for years, and my beer's really good. I'm going to do it. 
So he opened a brewery for like $35,000 is what he told me. Mm-hmm. And you walk in and you're like, yes, you did. You did open a brewery for $35,000. It's all Home Depot plywood and janky kettles. And it, it wasn't it wasn't the best looking. And the beer wasn't very good. <laughs> but he needed help on Friday night to pour beer. And I said, I'm free. And so I poured beer that I was like, I don't know if I drink this, but hey, at least I'm getting some experience. And I'm, and I'm learning a little bit about his process and everything. And then in my head, after like two months of it, I said, well, if this guy can open a brewery, is, again, this is a theme. If I see somebody else do it, I'm like, well, I think I can do a better job. So, but what records, yeah, they're not known for great beer. They're known for the guy, the owner was a burner, so he went to Burning Man. And so he had this kind of lazy fare kind of like yeah. attitude. And so there's, you know, some fast and loose playing with ABC regulations. There was poor quality of beer, questionable names for beer. And years later, a couple years later, he would burn his brewery down when he was trying to weld something. So he went from Wet and Reckless, which, by the way, is a, a plea in California for a crime just less than a DUI. So everybody was already ah. your brewery after driving under the influence. Anyway, so he, he burned the brewery down. And so he, he, re, he was reborn as just Reckless. So he wasn't wet anymore. And opened up across the street from Ballast Points, like $25 million, like literally across the street from Ballast Points. like, And it was a little better. Beer was a little better. Like he did a little bit more, but eventually he made a beer. Uh, he made a black lager, and he called it Black Loggers Matter. Mm. That was it, within his sense of humor. Not really something that's going to go over well, especially in San Diego, where there's a lot of um, activism on being better about how the beer industry uh, treats culture and growing up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it didn't end well, and he closed two months after that. And uh, you talk to most people from San Diego who know anything about the scene, talk about what it's, it's, there's Everybody's got a story, I think, at some point. Uh, but yeah, that's where my career started, is just in volunteering. So again, something mostly illegal, because uh, <laughs> you should be paid, paid for that stuff. But it got me behind a bar, it got me thinking, oh, well, if he could do it for that, I could probably raise you know, $50,000, $60,000 and start. So that that put the, the seed in my head that I could do it. This is a question I ask everybody, but that looking back now, do you think that you were right or just naive and didn't get it? Both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't finding a job. I didn't have the education. I didn't have any experience. The like I said, the places that kind of knew me. I don't think it was a it was a bad thing. I think they just they kinda had a policy they didn't hire and I didn't want to like drive to Chula Vista to go work at a brewery. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I had too many options if I wanted to get into beer besides I was looking at school for it, but it was like, am I going to go wait on a two-year list to get into UC Davis and then maybe, you know, or fly out to Chicago for, you know, a couple months after waiting three years to even get into Siebel, you know? So I kind of just said, well, I'm going to spend all that money getting an education. Why don't I just spend that money and start my own business? Which is what a lot of people say now. It's like, hey, don't don't go to college. Just, you know, do your own thing. Take that money and save it. But I'd already gone to college, so I doubled down. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so that was that. I convinced myself that, hey, you know what? I'll get a really good education by just doing it. And I'm totally right. I totally did. No, say in your defense, that that part probably worked out. But, but yeah, definitely naive thinking that, oh, these guys have breweries. They know what they're doing. And then realizing years later, oh, no, none of us had any idea what we're doing. Some of us just faked it better or got a little lucky and right timing. There's, there's a lot of things you still have to be right, but yeah, it was the wild west and it was 2010, 2011 to like 2014 where a lot of nano breweries like started popping up because it was that low entry costs. I'm brewing. I'm a brewer now. This is so cool. And then reality hits. Yeah. You see that in a lot of industries. 
whenever somebody figures out a way to lower the barrier to entry, you get more people in. But, you know, in all honesty, you get more people in that are unqualified and unskilled and inexperienced. And it does put a challenge on the industry. I personally think that the nano thing is just one of those things that's never going to go away, but it's always going to be a boneyard. And it it sucks. Like uh, I interviewed a guy yesterday who had been the, the head brewer in the very beginning of Funky Buddha, which is that story that they opened with a one and a half barrel system and seven years later sold for $80 million. Like that's, that's the one we all think is going to happen to us, right? Like I had the same problem. I opened with a two barrel system. Oh, that would be great. I would have taken like, you know, a million dollars. My threshold is a little lower, but yeah, no. And, and I think you had a couple of breweries, uh, Mike Manos in, in San Diego that had been very successful at growing. I mean, even look at Ballast Point, you know, they started in the back of Home Brew Mart on the Home Brew set and then they got it like, they actually bought a real brew house and everything. But, you know, that's, that's kind of how it started in the 90s. Uh, and then you got Mike Hess and you have a lot of people forget that uh, Mother Earth Brewing Company from San Diego started as a nano in a home brew shop. Hmm. They don't have a home brew shop now and they've got two 30 barrel breweries on the West Coast. Like, they're doing well and but they start and they just they built up around the same time as Mike Hess so there is some yeah there's a lot of hey and I definitely did that I, I <laughs> took that bait right off the hook or probably still the hook in my mouth and uh and went for it yeah so when you opened was April 2013 at that point there was like 70 breweries in San Diego 3,000 around the United States what did you think of that number do you, can you remember back to the thinking about okay there's this many breweries here's how I'm gonna fit did you think it was a lot? Did you think it was going to triple from where it was? Yeah, actually, no, I knew it was going to grow because, like, it was. And you saw it coming. I don't know if I knew it was going to get to 10,000 or I'd even as many as it did within the time frame my brewery was open. I Probably not. I, th- I think a lot of people are saying, yeah, say you're going to have about 100 breweries. I'm like, cool, I'm in. You know, I think there are already people are already talking about, oh, there's already saturation, you know, 70, 80 is a lot, 100 maybe. And it seems about 150 actually is kind of where it it's settled. You've got pretty much as many openings as closings now. So yeah, I, I definitely was like, man, I wish I would have done this three years ago. That would have been really great because then I would have been right at the beginning of the of the wave. Instead, I kind of just grabbed it right as it was going. Yeah, but it didn't really. I mean, I was, I was like I said, I was just naive. I, I didn't really think too far ahead. I was just like, let me just get this place making some money, and then we'll think about it. So, what did you do for a business plan? Um, did you have somebody help you write it? Did you go online and steal somebody else's? Like, or even was there a written plan? Which I did not have one. So to clarify, I did. I did write a business plan. I went on. Yeah, I went on the internet and looked up how to write a business plan. So I didn't go to school for that. Right. A bunch. Uh, I I was. Fortunate I had some access to some like restaurant business plans and and, and like private offerings that kind of gave me some insight into how because I, I needed investors I didn't have the money myself and so I was talking to friends and family and I'm like hey so I, I had some reference material and just kind of had a couple of breweries that I knew sent me some like supply materials like lists of what things would cost and so I just yeah I kind of built it I'm like this is how much beer costs this is how much I can sell it for this is how much rent is you know i did it all and all those numbers were very accurate but i missed about 30 percent of what was actually going to cost to do it two years later i'm like oh okay well i didn't realize toilet paper cost that much damn (laughs) so your top line was actually fairly accurate and your bottom line was the issue for you yeah well yes and no i definitely missed stuff as far as expenses go but as far as like figuring out you know what i was going to bring in and how i did with understanding the cost of goods and everything I actually did pretty well I, I knew what I needed to sell beer for to, to, to make it work and, and pay people and for several years it was beer profitable and it was good 
Yeah, what I've seen more often than not in the business plan part is everyone seems to be fairly accurate on the cost structure, you know, within range. Like you're going to forget certain things and, oh, CO2 costs how much? I didn't think that was anything. But at the end of the day, like you're fairly close. But most people write their business plan by figuring out what the expense structure is going to be and then just drawing a graph with a line high enough in sales to cover that, whatever that is, with no real tie to how it's going to get there. So usually the top line is the one that I've seen just be like wildly off. You know, I've seen guys that put in there, they can do a hundred, hundred twenty thousand dollars a month out of their tasting room and they're, you know, oh, eight. yeah, no, I, I thought <laughs> if I can do a quarter million dollars, I know I can pay for this place. And so year two and year three, we did just shy of 300 and we were, it was, it was very good. I talked to, you know, other nanos. And I, I literally, there was nights I was sitting in a nano brewery on a Friday night just seeing how many customers walked in <laughs> and, and was like, okay, they had 80 people here. And each one, so if I do half that, I'll do, I didn't think I was going to do $100,000 a month. So I tried to keep my perspective and my forecasting as, as realistic as possible. And then it obviously would change after six months. I'm like, cool. Okay. We're doing this. Now I can add this employee or now I can do all that. I, I kind of knew that from the get go. Cool. So what equipment did you pick? Did you just go to one of the other nano breweries and copy down the model number and order that online? No, I actually, so I built one out of. So my first system, which I still have in my garage, is basically a, a half barrel homebrew system. And I built it at home. Like even before I found a place, I just, I had it at home. I never even used it. I just purchased it and it was all ready to go. And it was just sitting in my dad's backyard, ready to, whenever we got a spot just to go in. Yeah, it was Bayou kettles, like 30 gallon or 25 gallon kettles. Bought a mash ton from some website that had a false bottom that was moving in. It drilled my own holes, put my own things in, and then built a, a wooden brew stand that was a very poor decision, but you know, it was cheap. I remember it was like week two or three and but when I opened it was it was kind of a big deal when a brewery opened, so a lot of brewers would they're like, Oh, hey new brewery opened, I I'll, I'll go meet them and say hi yeah, and support. So I had some San Diego um, royalty come through, which, you know, is crap your pants moment as a Oh God, this guy. So it was Yusuf Cherney from Ballast Point, which is right across the freeway from me. And I'm like, I know who you are, brewmaster at Ballast Point, now incredibly loaded because <laughs> <laughs> he sold two businesses now. But he comes in and has beer. He's like, hey, beer's good, man. Like, like welcome to the neighborhood, all that. And he looks over my brew stand. He's like, wooden brew stand, huh? Like, <laughs> I think I do what you got to do. He's like, yeah, yeah. And then we're talking about Wet and Reckless when they burned down like a year later. He comes up to me at a CCBA, which is the California Craft Brewers Association meeting. He's like, hey, man, I heard a brewery burned down in Miramar. I thought it was you. <laughs> I was really glad to hear it wasn't. <laughs> and I'm like, feel better. I got rid of it. I have a three barrel now that's all stainless. And he's like, good, good. I, yeah, you, you make good beer. So I didn't want you to go out. <laughs> I'm like, I appreciate it. Yeah, you don't want the, the wooden brew stand to be your what you're known for. That's- yeah, yeah. As the, the end to the whole thing. I actually took it and like put a tabletop on it and it became a, a table. Uh, in my tasting room as like a little piece of history with all the scorch marks and, <laughs> and burnt wood on it that was on it. That gives it a patina and some character, right? Yeah, no, it, was, it definitely was character. We called her Old Smoky. <laughs> okay. sit there and simmer during a brew day. It was great. So did you keep that system the whole time or did you add it? Uh, yeah, so we do pilots on it. I had some half-barrel fermenters and so we often, I kind of had an open brewing policy on the on that system with all of my employees. So they all would come in and, and brew beer if they wanted something, you know, we'd brew it together or whatever. And like I said, I still have it because technically I bought it before the business, so it's, it was technically mine. So you bought a bigger system at some point? Yeah, so very quickly within probably a month, I upgraded to one-barrel kettles and then about 
nine months later, I bought a stout, three and a half barrel, because I was using the plastic, you know, the plastic conical fermenters. Uh, so it was three barrels, was perfect. So that just went straight in. But before that, I was brewing two or three times in, into those tanks, and those were longer days. And so, I'm like, hey, if I buy this thing, then I don't have to spend as much time. You would describe brewing three oh, times yeah. as a longer day. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a fucked up day, if you ask me. That's a long day, for sure. So, like, how did you figure? You mentioned investors. How did you pay for all of it? What was your plan? Did you go call grandma up and say, "Hey, here's what I need"? Did you happen to have some uh, rich friends somewhere? Like, what? How did you get this thing off the ground? Yeah, so a little combination of all that. So, built the business plan. My dad helped me with that. He's a lawyer, so he helped me get you know incorporated and all that type. Or- LLC and all that type of stuff. And so between him, my dad, my future mother-in-law and some buddies of my family who were like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, they're wealthy, they're retired and they're like, you know, here's $5,000. And they got a couple of those. And then me and my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Yeah, I think I had about $28,000 in cash and a bunch of credit cards. And I said, this is a great idea. I can start a business. How could this and lose? But- so lesson number one, don't do that because <laughs> it bites you in the ass later. Yeah, especially not in the brewing industry. I will say one of the problems I had is that I came in with that same mentality because I built my first company that same way. I literally, my dad loaned me $20,000 that he had run his credit card in his business for and then written, wrote me a check for whatever the minus the fees were and uh, ended up you know building that company in eight years to sell for millions of dollars. So I was like, oh, surely we could do it in beer too. And, Surely you cannot. It does not work that way in beer. At least not for me. And obviously not for you. So it's, it's a, I think, yeah, it's the uh, the one out of 20 that kind of makes that work. Because I know a lot of people that did it that way. And I'm still, I still see people who try to do it that way. And I see some people who are, are halfway in between of they're going for that million dollar brewery, but only have $300,000. They're like, yeah, let's go ahead and let's go for it. We'll make it work. Well, it sounds like you had a, a good first few years, but looking back now, were there anything in the business plan, anything in the startup capital that you raised that you could point to be like, you know what, I might still be around today if I had tweaked these few things? I think our ultimate downfall was our decision, well, my decision, I say us, it was me, <laughs> was my decision to, we had 2,400 square feet, we were covering all of our expenses, I was paying off my debt that I had with the credit cards and everything. And then we went from, you know, six breweries in the Miramar area in San Diego to like 12, 13. You're talking like pure projects opening up. You're talking Duckfoot and Palace Points building their thing. And I'm like, okay, I can't be this roll up garage anymore. I have to build a, mm-hmm. you know, a, although I can't necessarily afford a world class venue, I need to build something that is, is nice and enjoyable. You know, it shouldn't be 100 degrees in there during the summer. It shouldn't be freezing during the winter. There shouldn't be rats running in through the back door. All those things that happens, uh, I shouldn't have. So we were able to get some more space from our landlord to build a tasting room that was climate controlled, built out properly. You know, it wasn't barren concrete floors with divots in them. It was, you know, we did as nice as we could for the budget that we had. And to try to compete in that market where, you know, tasting room experience was becoming really big. It wasn't just people showing up at a roll up anymore. It was, no, there's seating, there's entertainments, there's games, there's, Obviously, great beer, but also the, there's a large bar and, and access to all that and that information. I made the decision to say instead of, okay, let's just go ahead and pay everything off and then do that. I said, no, we're growing. We've been growing every year. If we grow another 15% in the next two years, this will cover all of my new overhead and we're good to go. And so we built it. I got a small business loan because at that point I've been open three years. So I got it 
nice low interest small business loan and that I didn't miss a payment to of until the day we closed. So congratulations. And then everybody didn't get any money. So that was it. I added way more overhead and then those growth numbers just didn't come because then we went from 12 breweries in the area to 20. And while I probably had one of the nicer, especially for a nano's tasting rooms, now nobody was growing as much and competing it for those retail dollars in that area. And the tourism money that I was getting, because when there were six breweries, Ballast Point would get a big old bus, and then they'd be like, hey, go down the street to this cool little nano brewery, and i get a bus show up on a Saturday of 50 people, and we, you know, I'd pay my rent in two hours. That stopped happening, because now it was, oh, go to Ailsmith, go to Ballast Point, go to Pure Project, go to these other more known breweries outside of San Diego. So we kind of got off that, not through, I think, any fault of our own. I had amazing staff. We have award-winning beer. It was just a situational. I think I saw a lot of other breweries have the same kind of struggle. Interesting concept. We had the same thing when we first opened. There were two of us basically in town. And once we had two more breweries, then all the buses would come from the bigger cities and we would literally a rising tide lifted all boats. But we never went above that number. And so interesting concept. What you're saying is that at some point when it goes above that number, the bus can only, what, five maybe on at the most responsibly? Yeah, we... we <laughs> We had some, I would get these emails. Hey, we're doing a bus tour. We want to come to your spot. I'm like, hey, great. Go ahead and come. You should start with us because <laughs> you're planning on going to eight breweries. I don't want to be the eighth brewery. We actually close early on Saturdays. We close at seven. We do like private events all night, but literally we close early because there is a point where we would have buses show up later and then people like, yeah, we're on our 11th brewery. I'm like, how? How are you doing this? Oh, we're doing one beer at each place. I'm like, a taster or and then you see the guy just go oh, and I'm like whoa I thought it was a liability we would have buses show up and I would have regulars leave they'd see a bus and be like I like coming here because you don't get buses I'm mm-hmm. like, it's a uh, two-edged sword there the scene changed I put more money into it owed more money didn't it reach our overhead and that was so I guess that what I was change would be is yeah I would, I would have waited it out maybe a little bit longer sweated it out literally and kind of make sure my my finances were in a really really solid position before i would have jumped to add all that overhead on top i would have used cash as often as i could instead of taking out more loans or credit cards or whatever but i was i was so let's go let's go let's look like we're growing let's look like i mean you, you see it all the time and the growth is the thing everybody's chasing so it's like well i can get ten thousand dollars from these guys and that'll help me you know start canning so i'm gonna go do that and now, now I'm in cans, cool. And that, that can definitely, that it bit me in the butt. Yeah, when you're defense, to your point earlier, if had you done that five years before, that would have been an intelligent way use of it. And you would have probably catapulted to the next level because it was, what, Ballast Point was 15. I think St. Archer was 17. At that point, that's when the big money was still being flushed towards our industry. But at the same time, you were seeing the individual brewery shrink and it just... I think it fucked with a lot of people's heads. It gave us a wrong impression of what where we were at and what the success was looking like. I want to hear a little bit about kind of the beers that you made, um, why you made the choice not to distribute, but let's do that really quickly after a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back. If you're going to put your logo on something, you have a ton of choices out there. So what do you do faced with all this crippling choice? How do you pick the best promotional company to help you market your brand to the boys and girls that need to see it? Well, it's pretty simple, really. You just listen to me. I've used LeapFrog promotions for like a decade and a half, but I've also used brewery-specific and even glassware-specific companies. And you want to know what I found? I found that LeapFrog is just as good at the product side. In fact, they're actually better because they have more choice. 
Why only brand shirts and caps like everyone else when you can do pens, coffee mugs, embroidery, tents, banners? But where they really kill it is on the service side. It's a one owner company and Kelly, nope, not me, the other Kelly, actually gives all the cares about helping you be better in your business. And in this business, we know service sells over quality. So why on earth would you sell for anything less than your vendors? That is why I have to recommend Leapfrog Promotions to you, the people you love, a few you just like, and two you absolutely hate. Give yourself a gift and type Dan Brewery in the notes at checkout and you'll get 5% off all your purchases. Even better, every single purchase you make benefits the show. Find them online at leapfrogpromos.com. Leapfrog, guys. Remember Leapfrog. All right, so welcome back. After all this prep, all the building, you've gotten everything together. You finally get the doors open in 2013. The question everyone's got to ask, was there a line out the door? Uh, no. Usually uh, there's no, not. <laughs> seen places that had a line out the door when they're opening weekends. Marketing and, and promotion is, is um, just, and sales. Uh, so three things that are kind of important when you have a business. Not the best at. I've always struggled with it. I'm better now because I know a little more about the industry, but... So I, I had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, literally had, it was a couple hundred bucks in the business account. I quit my job because I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it full time. I'm not going to half-ass it. So I've seen people who are like, no, I'm keeping my job. And then it breathes and it. Well, I think with a barrel and a half system, you kind of have to, don't you? I mean, at some point you just, you couldn't make enough beer. If you had 15 barrels, you could brew once a week, split into multiple batches. And there's ways around that. But with a barrel and a half, you got to brew enough. You couldn't have a real job, I don't think. I had no idea what was going to happen. I just, I had four beers, five beers ready. It's on Monday. And I said, okay, because we're going to open Wednesday through Sunday. So I said, all right, I'm open on Wednesday. I've been fortunate enough that I met through my many years standing on the other side of the bar. I met a guy who ran the West Coaster magazine in San Diego, which was dedicated to the brewery scene. Unfortunately, it's not around anymore. He's, I think he spun it off into a bigger beverage magazine in Southern California. So he had a Facebook and a lot of people followed him on Facebook. So when I said, "Hey, I'm opening Wednesday," he posted it for you know posted it out. So I had people show up, and before we even opened, which is cool. Yeah. But I wouldn't call it was more of like a, a small huddle, of like four people. <laughs> I remember my first customer, Teresa. She's uh, she's a legend in the San Diego beer scene. She's at everybody's first opening if she can make it. She's very kind, and so she was she was the first customer, and then a couple of people trickled in, and you know we ended up doing five six hundred bucks the first day, and I'm like. Okay, if I can do this the rest of the week, I've now paid rent. That's mm-hmm. great because mm-hmm. I was paying ninety nine cents a square foot for twelve hundred square feet when I started. Which at the time, I'm like this seems like a lot. I think my neighbors are paying like seventy five cents. I guess I'm a liability. And now you know, knowing it's like, yeah, that same unit's probably like two fifty a square foot in San Diego. Yeah, then by you know the weekends, yeah, I'd done like a couple thousand bucks, and I was like, oh, all right, cool. I even have, I have some tips. I can go buy a sandwich and <laughs> pay rents and I've got enough to buy, you know, more ingredients and, and brew more beer and, and we'll get up to, we'll fill all eight taps I had and this is going well. And then we opened next Wednesday and I did $30. <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> well, that's, oh, I thought this was good. Yeah. Teresa, then, you didn't you know, come back? We did probably 600 <laughs> bucks the whole second week. You know, it got better. It definitely did get better. That was, a, yeah, it was an interesting couple of months. But at that point, my over so I didn't have any employees. I was just paying rent, insurance. I had bought all of, uh, all my kegs, so I didn't, you know, wasn't renting kegs. You know, it's like, I, it, it was okay. It was okay. If I did, I think I said, if I did like 4500 bucks a month, that would pay for everything. And then anything over that, I could maybe pay myself. So that was, it was super, super low overhead there. And yeah, we hit it. We hit it pretty easy. I mean, we started doing ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 a month real quick. So I was able to hire somebody part-time to bartend to help and... We were off to 
the races. How did you decide what to brew as far as, did you, um, have, did you have a lineup? Of it was definitely, you know, what sells the IPA. I was really into session IPAs at the time. So we started out with session IPA. I still like having a variety in a, in the best way I can differentiate myself than just the, the standard tap list. So I, I don't, I, I kind of probably think of it more like a brew pub where it's like, we need a, a light beer. We need a malty beer. We need a hoppy beer. We need, a, you know, brown porter and then a stout. And I, I always kind of like catering a, an entire tap list. So I always kind of try to fill those holes, but like the core beers I started with was Scottish ale because again that was kill lifter couldn't get it. I'm like let's do that. So brew a Scottish style ale, oatmeal stout, session IPA, IPA, and I think a wheat beer. It might have been Belgian wheat beer. Were the beers and a brown? I brewed a brown, and that kind of was like the core. And then I'd do some specialty ones since uh, my buddy and I he, he brewed a coconut porter all the time. It was really good. It won a bunch of home ring awards. I'm like hey, can we brew that? He's like, yeah. So he came in and helped me brew it. And then, of course, the like it came out for our grand opening. And that was the first keg to blow. Was this, you know, it was freshly toasted coconut. They literally toasted it like two days before. Fresh, super fresh. Like, it's really good. And so now all of a sudden we're like, oh, there's that coconut porter brewery. I'm like, oh, cool. You're known for this one-off. Um, yeah. I'm now known for a beer that's not mine. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I feel really good about that. You lean into it. And so that, that became a regular because we ran out of it within uh, three kegs of it. So we ran out of that in a couple of weeks. And But we kind of started leaning into that kind of, because I think it was the, the, the wheat beer was a cucumber wheat. And so we kind of had some of these kind of weird flavors that not everybody was doing at the time. Or just like a little more food. Got did some more of that stuff to differentiate ourselves. Uh, I also really like dark beer. So by the time we got to 20 taps, I would say I'd always have four or five dark beers on, which was like crazy unheard of. I mm-hmm. wouldn't put that many dark beers on. If they had a dark beer, which wasn't guaranteed, it'd be one. And maybe it was an Imperial Stout. Because like, at least there's alcohol in it. <laughs> but we had, I, had, I had a honey porter and a oatmeal stout, a black IPA, Imperial Stout, um, coconut porter. So like those were all pretty regularly on. So we kind of became known a little bit for, for brewing darker beer. Our first award was for our coconut porter, then our oatmeal stout, our honey porter. They all, all, almost all of our dark beers ended up winning awards at some point. <laughs> I kind of got known for that. So obviously you're in San Diego, which is, you know, in some ways still is sort of the capital of IPAs in the world, unless you're an East Coast guy, which I don't, I'm not. But uh, out of curiosity, what was that like? Did you just get this like humongous beer nerd population coming in, just sniffing your IPA and just judging it like hell. Like, I, I just feel like it, 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 it's like serving it to the queen at some point where you, you know, you're just going to get shit on by random assholes. Cause they just want to shit on something that they, you, you know, you're in San Diego making an IPA. How does that go? I mean, IPA was 30 to 40% of what we sold, right? That was just the nature of the business. It, our number two beer at the end, basically over all the years was our house IPA. It was okay. I, I'm I'm still. I mean, it's ten years in, and I still. I mean, maybe this newest batch IPA I just brewed is close to what I really like as far as IPA goes. I never really brewed IPA at home, and this gets back to that. Like, hmm. what did you brew? And all the access to local Well, I got I've got world class IPAs right here. I got Alesmith IPA. I got Sculpin, Big Eye, Stone IPA. I got you know all these great IPAs from Pizza Port and. Why would I brew an IPA at home? All I'm going to do is screw it up. That They don't brew these open stouts and these malty things. So that's what I would brew is the malty things. Barley wine and wee heavy and all that. I think maybe I brewed because I knew I was going to be opening the brewer. I wanted to. So I'm like, I got to start brewing IPA. So I started brewing IPA like six months before I signed the lease on my place. And yeah, they weren't great to start. I definitely got some flack, I think, from, from people coming in. A 
in San Diego, Untapped wasn't really a big thing yet, if it was even a thing. The message boards on Facebook were a lot nicer. I think people were just excited to see something growing like that. So the, the people coming in were much more willing to see you grow and get better. By two or three years into it, the snobbery had gone full force. <laughs> if you weren't making an excellent IPA and clean beer the first week you're in business, people would never even go back to you. They wouldn't even like, oh, no, I went there. It's not good. It's like, it's been open for five years. They've, they've been, they just won Small Brewing Company of the Year at GIBF. What do you mean you won't go back there? Somebody likes like, it. And they changed. But I, so I, I, we got to a point where that, that IPA was good. It was clean. I had some diacetyl issues early on. Some of the folks at White Labs actually really helped me out to like help me QC it and like figure out the process. So, so it was all it was all like hop creep diacetyl because I was dry hopping. Mm. Anyways, but every time I dry hop, I had precursor and I'd restart produced acetyl so i had all these buttery ipas but then we changed the process and and that stopped so that got better learned some processes from some other brewers how they do it and you know it got better but because we'd started off with that variety and that diff kind of maybe a little bit different approach than some of the other breweries that were like and a lot of the nano breweries were just brewing like eight percent beer doesn't matter what it was it was all just strong and we were brewing session beer we were brewing malty beer river and dark beer so people would say, oh, yeah, I like that brewery. They make really good, like, malty and dark beers. IPAs are okay, but I like going there for that. And so we kind of built a little, a niche a little bit, or at least people would say nice things about some of our stuff because we did it. Places didn't. They're just like, it's San Diego. You have to brew 14 IPAs. And I'm still on the, I'm still on the, hey, I'd rather have two really good IPAs that turn over really quickly than have 14 on because then the IPA is fresh. So that's kind of the way it went for us. So you made a conscious decision not really to use distribution as part of your business model. What, what was the reason behind that? Curious. I mean, at first I got three kegs per batch, so yeah. I wasn't like I needed it all. And then, you know, just doing that was a margin on retail is just better. Some people were interested in kegs and I didn't even own any like six stoles. I just had half barrels. So I was like, well, you want half? And they're like, yeah. And I was just like, the effort involved in distributing and trying to sell beer just didn't, didn't make sense for me when I could just not and sell it for way more. Uh, we did just, there's a couple bars that we really liked and we, we would sell them kegs every once in a while as kind of a, Hey, we'll get a handle somewhere. Maybe it'll help draw some people in. But yeah, I just, just was not making enough beer for the first couple of years, just even to warrant it. I think our, you know, we we're right up at our capacity at, at certain points at, you know, 250, 300 barrels. So at that point, how many days a week are you brewing? So on the three barrel, pretty much a little complicated because I've gotten some seven barrel tanks eventually. There's four or five batches a week sometimes, but then I'd fill everything and I wouldn't brew for two weeks. So I would say, mm. you know, we're doing there's at least twice a week on the three barrel, upwards of, of yeah, two or three times a week. We'd usually do it. So we we were doing about that, yeah, in sales and every kegs every once in a while. Beer festivals too. That we'd send kegs to that. Did you have flagships, like things you made over and over that you, know, you kind of stood for your brewery? Uh, obviously, the Yeah, so we had our, our Andromeda IPA, sorry, like House IPA. I brewed that a lot. Our coconut porter was was known, and so we had to keep that around. And then eventually, we, we got into brewing a, a coffee cream ale or like a golden stout that ended up being our number one beer, which was really kind of fun. That San Diego Brewery, but our number one beer was not an IPA. <laughs> And our number three beer was not an IPA. I think our number four beer was not an IPA because we were very much, I mean, like I said, I never really was proficient at brewing them. So I felt like, let's do the things I'm really good at. That would make sure we have a lot of good beer. And then the IPAs are a little weak. Eh. 
people get over it if they they think the other sixteen are good. So one of the things that I when I meet a lot of different brewers, you see guys who are either really good at recreating the same thing over and over and just kind of hitting gravity, always hitting the, the same numbers throughout the whole process. I was terrible at that because I don't I don't personally enjoy that. I think it's cooler to have like batches vary from batch to batch and have interesting and unique characteristics this year versus last year. But that doesn't work in normal beer, especially not with flagships. For you, do you do you take pride in being able to hit that same gravity? Are you a consistency guy or are you an artist guy? I really appreciate the nuances. I'm kind of like you in that like, hey, yeah, there's gonna be this, this different crop here, this different all that. But I also understand, yeah, I, we had people that came in and they wanted that they wanted that beer tasting the same way every single time. And so, yeah, you get a little, I got a little, I still am a little, when it comes to like, yeah, flagships. Flagships is a funny term because I think of a flagship as like, yeah, we make 20,000 barrels of that and it all goes into a cans and stuff. Whereas like a flagship for a tasting room is like, yeah, we've got blondes or, you know, our IPA. But if it's a little different each time because it's a small system, I feel like people are, are kind of okay with that as long as it's pretty close because you're you're closer to the artist you're closer to the brewer so it's like yeah i painted the mona lisa again but it's gonna be different each time because <laughs> i'm hand painting it i think most people kind of get that but yeah if you're stone you have to make the same thing because the people buying a 24 pack at costco of stone ipa they want the same beer every time I mean, especially with miller and Coors and all those guys but yeah no i, I get i've definitely gotten the last couple of years especially since i worked at a production brief a couple times now where it's like you have to hit the same flavor profile in each one you get a little more meticulous about the brew process and a little more stress involved in those days because we're like i gotta make sure i hit everything brewing at a brew pub where we had you know six core year-round beers was really developing your palate to make sure you know each time you taste you're like yep we're right there or well we want to move it a little bit this way or want to move it a lot bit that way we can't do it overnight we have to do it over the course of six months because People will notice it. Those are all things you have to consider and take pride in their own ways. Yeah, I know brewers who are just like, they're like, hit all my numbers today, shift beer, woo. And then other guys who are like, just they're just so freelance about it. They're just, I don't know, they're shoving their hand in everything. and like, yeah, let's get it going. And oh, this will be different this time. This is great. Maybe there's like three or four beers that I really had to make sure were the same every time. And we did a pretty good job actually doing that. Never really had people complain that this batch is a little different. Maybe with the IPAs because they were, I was constantly tweaking them. But with like coconut porter and the coffee beer and our wheat beer and our Scottish ale and oatmeal stout, I mean they were they were pretty consistent and made gravity a little different. Alcohol off by like point one or something that's going to happen. But I want them like that because those beers are staples. But then like each year we brew barley wine. It's like if it's a little different each year, that's great. I love that. So tell me about your tasting room a little bit. How big was the tasting room? Did, did you had eight taps, but like how many seats did you have? So we started off in 1,200 square foot garage, basically in the back of an industrial park. Very quickly got the unit next to us after they got kicked out for growing weed. <laughs> for the first six months I was open, everybody came in like, you guys just rip a fat joint in here? Because they're growing weed next door. And I was like, no, they're, they're growing weed next door. <laughs> like, I, like everybody knew it? I got caught by the landlord and kicked out because that was before it was legalized in California. And our landlord was, he was multi-state, so like the feds could seize the property. So they're just like, nope, you're gone, bye. I remember the day they kicked him out, and my landlord was there, took the keys from him. And she turned to me and was like, hey, you want the unit? I'm like, yes, send me, a, send me a lease. I will take it tomorrow. And she's like, cool. There's a business on the other side of the building from us. And they were like, hey, so is that available? And I'm like, no, I just took it. They're like, 
we wanted to use it for a ping pong room because they were like a big a ping pong room. They wanted to play ping pong in there. I was like, come on. <laughs> we made the taste room bigger. Um, started with eight taps, very quickly went to 12. I just drilled some more holes into the thing and, and put them in between. And then when we got that second unit, we put in a bit much bigger cold box because my cold box was $500 from St. Archer. I don't know why they did this. They had money, but they bought every used cold box in San Diego, I think, and we're trying to piece one together. And then they decided, well, this is really stupid. And then they bought a brand new one. But they had all these old ones sitting in their warehouse. And so I heard through the grapevine they had some cold boxes. And they're like, ah, just take it here. here take it for 500 bucks. And they probably spent like $2,000 on it. Get it out of here. It's, it's in the way. We need to put a 120 barrel fermenter right there. I'm like, okay, cool. So I, I had two buddies with pickup trucks drive into the brewery before they built St. Archer and load up <laughs> the old, this tiny, 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 like, cold box and no lights in it. And I had a... I went in there like I was a minor spelunking. Um, <laughs> and so I got, I bought a nice cold box and we put 20 taps in. And so we had 20 for about for three and a half of the, of the year, maybe even four of the years we were open. We had 20 taps. And that, that I think is what really at some point set us apart because we, sure. we I kept at least 16 on pretty much all the time. I was just going to ask you that. Was it a challenge to keep 20 full? Sometimes, but I mean, I had the two systems. So if I needed to like, Especially for if there's going to be a weekend coming up where it was like, like beer week or something like that, or we're doing an event, you know, I knew two or three weeks out, I had four little half barrel fermenters. I would just fill them with, uh, and then, so I'd have one keg of each, but it added that variety, really helped out. It was something that drove people in because they're like, oh, they've got new beer all the time because he has tiny fermenters. So that's, you know, he's working his butt off. He's there too much. <laughs> so I'd also read somewhere that you guys were one of the only breweries that was open seven days a week. Yes. So in our area, Wednesday through Sunday was the norm. When we opened our new spot, I said, we're going Monday through Sunday because I'm paying rent on this thing every day of the week. So, and Mondays and Tuesdays were actually pretty solid for us. We had a really strong group of regulars. And then on Wednesday and Thursday, die off a little bit. And I, if I went to another brewery on Wednesday or Thursday, I'd see all of our regulars at the other brewery because we were their Monday or Tuesday spot and then they go to another place. It was kind of funny. That was different at the time, uh, and then, then everybody started doing Monday, Tuesday thereafter. But most of the nanos, they, I mean, it's when you're brewing in your tasting room, you have to have a day or two off to actually brew, unless you want to come in at 4 in the morning and then work until 9 o'clock at night, which I've done, and it's no fun. It is not. Those long days will kill you. So what about food? You guys obviously made a choice not to do that. Did you have food trucks? Whenever we could, yeah, uh, mostly Friday night. For a while there in San Diego, food like tents could pop up. And they have a, like a caterer's license uh, or like a farmer's market license. And they were just popping up at breweries. And eventually the health department's like, yeah, don't do that. Because uh, <laughs> usually when you do those, it's only for a couple hours and you can take a cooler and it's fine. But when you're sitting outside of a brewery and it's 95 degrees in the summer for five hours, you know, like your cooler that was at less than 41 degrees is now sitting at 48 degrees. And so... The health permit had a problem with that. So they switched the rules. So uh, last year or two, we didn't really have anybody because we weren't busy enough to warrant a food truck because mm-hmm. there were enough breweries that were busier than us that would get all the food trucks. And the food tent guys, were, they loved coming to our place and going to other nanos because they were easy set up, tear down. There was no low overhead. So it worked perfect. They could do a farmer's market in the morning and then go set up at us at night. And yeah, maybe they only did 300, 400 bucks in food, but 
they're hustling and, and it, it worked out well. I don't think anybody got sick, but health department didn't like it. So you couldn't do that unless you invested in infrastructure. And it's like putting in a, a mop sink. I mean, I had a mop sink, but putting in the grease trap and all this stuff to make sure that those guys could come and a refrigerator and all that. I don't have $10,000 to put a whole floor and, and then have to monitor it and then, you know, have somebody come out and pump it and all that. And it's like, no. So most breweries just kind of gave up on having food unless they were doing enough to warrant the, the food trucks. For me, I didn't have food. And I ran into an issue where not having food made it where you could watch my graph and at like six to seven, it would just die. People would leave and they would go eat somewhere and come back. Did you see on those days you didn't have anybody around at all? Did you see like an issue with just a drop in sales? Yeah, it was really interesting. We would definitely, it was the post-lunch or the post-dinner crowd and there's the pre-dinner crowd. And you're totally right. Like when we had food, especially like Thursday nights, when we, we did pretty good business on Thursday nights. But yeah, there was the after work, having a beer before I go home to dinner and then everybody would show up at 7.30 and they just had dinner with their families or something like that. Or they went home, had dinner, then went out to the brewery. And so there was a there was a little bit of that um, for sure. Yeah, it was. It, we just didn't have the money to, to do anything about it, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> Limited and, resources. You do what you can do, right? Yeah. Um. I, my current brewery, we've got a little kitchen that we do like. Uh, we've got like a countertop oven that we can make pizzas in. And the idea when they decided to do that was that yeah, we don't want to have to deal with food trucks, and there's going to be people who aren't going to come because we don't have food options. So we do like, you know, pretzels and little pizzas and, you know, make some salsa from scratch and it could be better, but it definitely, it helps a lot because it keeps people around a little bit longer or they're willing to come here at a certain time. So if you can figure out, I mean, it's literally like, it's like an $8,000 benchtop oven. We don't have to have a vent hood for it. You don't have to have a grease trap for it. It's the same one they have like subways. So you can just plug it in anywhere. And so it's, it's knowing that, that that's available now in hindsight, like that would be That'd be a great thing to do, just to, to have that option and do those little things. Now you've got to staff it and you've got a kitchen guy. And so like that, it adds complexities, but it definitely helps our bottom line here. And I think it would have in that situation with Intergalactic. All right. Well, you brought up Untapped earlier. So let's take a minute to take talk some shit about Untapped. As you, you got into the industry early, and I think Untapped was around in you know, 11, 12, 13, but it was, it was different. It was sort of like a more fun version of Beer Advocate, basically as opposed to what it has yeah. morphed into. But uh, I'm curious from your perspective, like I assume maybe you used it as a home brewer, probably enjoyed it once you went pro and especially towards the end, like how did that change? So I, I never really used it as a, as a home brewer or as a, as a consumer. My wife does. <laughs> so she's like, I have this beer and, and it's kind of fun that way. But she, we don't even like, even when we, I have used it on and off, but we don't usually rate beers. It's just about, you know, had that one I can remember especially when you would like go to a new brewery like hey which ones did I have um I might make a note really like this but that's the way I we used it if we did it was maybe a shock because it was like six months in I was like I haven't checked on tops and I'm like oh that thing oh that's right we're on there and so then I got an account and they managed all the beers because oh man it was people just they'd spell the beer wrong and then there'd be 14 different you know Andromeda IPAs on there I'm like no they have one beer okay and some of the ratings would be good for one. And I'm like, can we delete that one? You know, like, I, I think people weren't really overly sensitive about the rating at that point. That hype, that, you know, double juicy hazy and this giant pastry stouts. You know, those are the only beers, of course, that can be rated five stars if you read untapped. At all. <laughs> it's only um, one possible. A, a lager cannot be rated more than 3.8. There's no way possible on earth that a, a beautifully made 
European lager can be rated more than 3.8. If you rate it more than 3.8, you are you don't know what you're talking about. They'll kick you off, I think. I think so, yeah. I think you'll lose your cool kid card, definitely. Hadn't quite started yet. Uh, people are being mildly fair, I think. And then, yeah, towards the end there, it was definitely... You see some of the, the more hype, trendy breweries, and then all of a sudden their rating's like six points higher than yours. Like that, that's not even possible. It's only a five. Um, and then they use untapped as, look, see, your beer sucks. It's a 3.7 instead of a 4.1, just like the brewery down the street. It's like, yeah, but it's not a 3.2 like Miller Light. Miller Light's actually a good beer because it's made really well and consistently. If you don't like the flavor, I get that. Okay, that's different. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would use it to just to read. If somebody wrote a comment and they're like, look, this beer tastes like butter. I'd be like, oh, oh no. That's not, <laughs> that's not good. You love it, which is great, but also that that's not going to butter it next time. So you're not going to like it next time. And then, oh, it doesn't have butter anymore. Two stars. I think I think I literally dumped the batch the next day because I was I, I have terrible perception of diacetyl. So I, I had a couple people that taste it and they're like, yeah, no, this batch has got diacetyl. I'm like, cool, bye. Down the drain, rebrewed it. <laughs> but I, I liked reading it for that because if somebody had actually flavor notes. And, you know, I, I, I do pretty well not getting too angry at people who really good three stars, like, that's really good. Or 10 out of 10 would drink again, 4.5, like, that's nine, that's not 10 out of 10. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, and I'm not, I'm not certain, I'm not certain that if you're not playing in that world of, you know, a new can design every week and giant pastry bombs and, and, or actual like hand grenade cans of fruit juice. If somebody's coming in and drinking Blondale, if they check that in on Untapped, I'm like, you're drinking Blondale and you're cool, good for you. But also at the same time, 90, 99% of the other people who are going to drink a Blondale, they, they don't even know what Untapped is. Uh, especially in this market in, in Wichita, you know, Fresno and Wichita, where the beer crowd is, is different. It's not as educated as San Diego. It's not as snobby as, as San Diego. And so it, it doesn't really matter for me in this sense. And then... When you, you build up regulars through quality of your product, quality of your staff, they're coming in and having their regular pint because that's what they do. And I doubt they've, they may have looked at Untap at one point, but you're better off engaging in those customers, I think, than unless you're doing haze bombs and stuff. <laughs> Go for it. Even then. Unicorn with a, with a parachute and glitter on your can and sell it for 28 bucks a pack, I wish. I could sell twenty or twenty dollars for four pack. That'd be great. It changed the game for quite a bit, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, so I agree. I hate Untapped. That's why I always like to bring it up so that everybody gets an opportunity to talk a little bit of shit about them. But one of my biggest questions is like, did you use them artistically at all? Like, did you look at it and be like, oh, that guy's probably right. I didn't put enough fucking coffee beans in it or whatever. Because I don't think you can or should. It's it's complicated because I would I would my, my favorite one to read reviews on was our coconut porter because it'd be like, oh, love it. And then it'd be like, oh, too much coconut. And then the next person, not enough coconut. Like, so we did we did perfect. If we had too little and too much, two days apart, where it hadn't changed. Yeah, clearly, and it's in the middle. Clearly, we're, we're, we're okay. Because also, I'm selling it like hotcakes. So, you know, and then, you, you, then once you start realizing that, you're just like, okay, it's not the same as getting notes back from a competition where you have other industry people or, or beer judges. Yeah. And when you get those back and they say diacetyl, you're like, okay. He's probably right. Get those back and say, beautiful, well-balanced beer, really great. Too bad he didn't win a medal, you know? And you're like, okay, well, at least they liked it, you know? You get that a lot. Yeah. And I take a little bit more stock in that. Or even just, I mean, I had friends who'd come and tell me, they're like, hey, man, this is really good. And also, this, you need to work on this. And I'd be like, what do I need to work on? 
more mouthfeel, so do this, this, and this. I'm like, okay, cool. And, you know, then you see that on Untapped, like, hey, somebody knows what they're talking about. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, right. They might be actually accurate. Good, good for them. Good for them. They're doing better. They're doing well. Why was I to go look up everybody's on tap so we can make fun of them a little bit? You didn't have a lot of bad ones, which is good. But I thought one that was funny was uh, the, the cake is a lie, which I think was your cream ale with some stuff. You can, you'll know better. That was, that was our coffee cream ale. That was our number one selling. Uh, some guy actually goes on there named Sean. He gives it four and a quarter caps. It's a pretty good review. And he goes, I'd forgotten how good this is. It's no naughty sauce, but still quite good. I So this is a personal thing. I fucking hate when people say shit like that. People used to say it to me all the time. I, you know, we did all mixed culture beer, Shadow of you know, Jester King, everybody knows them. We're 45 minutes away. And so every time somebody would taste it, like, well, it's it's not atrial. I'm like, no, it's not. It's fucking different. Like, I'm not going to, why would I, would you be proud of me if I just made atrial? Like, that, that's no, there's no accomplishment to that. Five and a half pounds per gallon, barely. It's, it's easy, right? But anyways, I thought that was annoying. Like, Naughty Sauce is a good beer. I've had it, but I don't, wouldn't think they're even similar. Yours is a cream ale. It'd be lighter body, wouldn't it? Well, so, oh, <laughs> Funny story, that beer was definitely inspired by Naughty Sauce. So, but at the same time, we we're like, we want to do our own thing on it. We want to take our own perspective on it. Naughty Sauce is it's on nitro. It's a lot. Actually, I think it's less alcohol. It's thinner. Um, I don't even know if it has lactose in it. I don't think it has vanilla in it. So we did it more of like, we took, we're like, we like the idea of a light colored coffee beer and came back this way with it. The first batch of it was nine and a half percent because we wanted a big one. We wanted a robust and we're like, this is really good, but we want to serve pints of it. So we brought it down to 7%. Thick body, served on CO2. It's got vanilla in it. I don't know if Naughty Sauce has cocoa nibs. Our stuff didn't. It was just coffee and vanilla and lactose. And so, it was, yeah, it was a distinctly different beer. But it also was like, I mean, it's like, hey, cool, you brewed an IPA. It's not Stone IPA. You're like, no, it's not. But, you know, we all had Stone IPA. And it's like, of course, we're brewing the same style. So it was, like, it was kind of like a... We had that beer. We like that style. We want to do our own version of it. So yeah, you, I, you definitely hear stuff like that, and you're just like, "Oh, it's not. You're right. It's yeah, it's not. It's different. It's designed to be different. It's uh, maybe it took some inspiration, but right. What it would be boring if you just made the same beer. Why would you even do that? That's my argument. Yeah. But I mean, I, I tell people all the time, like I've got the recipe to scope in. I mean, everybody in town in San Diego, <laughs> somebody brewed for Ballast Point. They all brewed it. They all know what's in it. If you make it and you sell it as your own it's not going to be as popular. I was like, you know, even if it's exactly the same, like there's, 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 it, there's way more going on. And so it's like, when you start uh, yeah, comparing, okay, I don't wish it was legal, but it would be an interesting psychological experiment. Open a new brewery and literally don't brew your own beer. Just buy other people's and rename it and mm-hmm. see what people rate it. And they'll be like, yeah, you buy, you buy a, you buy Lagunitas IPA, you put it on as American IPA. And they're like, this is, it reminds me of Lagunitas IPA, but it's not as good. You know, it's like, yeah, it literally is Lagunitas IPA. What do you, okay, yeah. I mean, at least you got close, I guess, but. There was a minute where I was going to do that when I was going to, when I went out to do samplings at different bars, going to repackage other people's beers in my beer on purpose to prove a point. And then I realized that it wouldn't matter. They're still going to hate me and still not, So it, whatever, it is what it is, but it would have been fun. So we've caught up with you being open, brewing, and, and the beers that you made. Let's take a quick break and we come back. I want to hear kind of how the last few years went, like what ended up happening, how it fell apart. We'll be right back. So, hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. 
They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type BreweryDirect into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. All right, so 2017, you guys enter the Los Angeles International Beer Competition and quite literally just fuck some shit up. You're the small guys from down south, and you come up there and you win, what, four awards? 17? I'm trying to remember. So I actually read the articles about it, so I don't remember which beers it was, but it was, it was four awards. Nobody else had won that many. Some other guys won three. I think I think Alesmith won three, and they got, like, best brewery or whatever, even though you won more. But So if this was, if this was L.A., so 13 we won at San Diego, 14 we won at L.A., and then 15 we won at both. It was like one of those years we actually won like 11 medals, um, really? but I don't think it was 17. Uh, I think, yeah, 17 was, was four and Ale Smith won as many or one less. And they don't have a like best brewery category or like mm. thing, which always bothered me because I think we would have won it twice <laughs> in three years because I'm uh, ultra competitive <laughs> and that would have been fun. Yeah. No, there, there was, I think it was, I think it was 15. I think we won like 10 or 11 medals. It was insane. And that was that was kind of when everybody's like, who are those guys? And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, they make really good beer. Because somebody else told you they made really good beer. And yeah, th- those are some of the happy days. We were like, we were, I remember the results came out and I was at my mom's house. One of my employees I grew up next to, like we were neighbors and he happened to be at his folks house. So we were actually both having dinner next to each other. And it, the results came out and I was like, oh my God. I'm like, hey, Jake, is, was that your car next door? He's like, yeah. So I like go ring the doorbell and he comes out and I'm like, dude, he's like, dude, it was really fun. The question a lot of people have, obviously would winning awards, you know, give you better sales? Would that create kind of a, the marketing behind it to get people to come to your doors? And so one of the, the reason I pointed out in 2017, you had won the four awards. Obviously you've won them years and years before that. But 2017 was the year you kind of decided this may not be my future anymore, right? So how did so, that feel to win all those awards, but still be at a point where you were struggling to the point that you didn't want to do this anymore? Yeah, no, that's that's where you you know you're making a good product. I knew I had an amazing staff, but the numbers just weren't there to sustain it much longer if it kept going the way it was. And that's that that just sucks because you're putting everything into it. And you're you're doing really well in a lot of ways, and then all of a sudden it's yeah, but in twelve months I can't keep the lights on. And that's, it's gut-wrenching. I remember always getting a bump after we won awards because there'd be an article and then people would be like, oh, that's right. I forgot about that brewery. I need to go back and check them out. And then they, we'd have people for the next like month like, oh, which one's won awards? And we'd be like, that one, that one, that one, that one. So it was really, it, it did help. I mean, I think it probably was, it was a plus thing for us. We definitely got more traction out of it than it spent to, to, um, to enter. And then it was, it, like we weren't doing really distribution, but whenever we did, it was easy. Like, oh yeah, it's won like three awards. They're like, oh okay, so I, somebody else said it was good, so I don't have to just trust you, which is always a crutch that kind of works with with sales. Yeah, which is nice. So we leaned on it. But yeah, no, when you're when you're making a good products and your tap room experience, which is the easiest thing for you to control, is those two things. Is 
how you treat people when they come in the building and what type of product you're putting over the counter. When those two things, I would give us A's on. And I think you talk to some people who remember my staff and, and the beer, and they're like, yeah, that place was awesome. I don't know why they failed. And uh, I have a clue, but <laughs> I don't know how to fix it. You know, it's like it's the, the debt didn't help. That was crushing, growing too fast. But then also at the same time, you know, it's the market changed. And there wasn't enough money coming in to have the bills going out. And that, you know, after a while, I mean, you borrow a little bit more money thinking, okay, if I get six more months, maybe we'll, we'll grow that extra 10% that we needed. And then you do, but then you realize, wait, crap, I just took out a loan. So now we pay that loan back. So that's actually the 10% that I, okay. And that just steamrolls and then you miss a couple payments and then it's, yeah. Or you max out the card and you don't have an extra 200 bucks to buy something. And you just, you, you sit, uh, for me, I definitely like, I turtled and I just became more reclusive and I just was brewing and I let my staff kind of do things. And then I was in that 2017, it was a couple months after San Diego. And that, I think that was the year too. We almost, we got a couple of beers into the GABF and World Beer Cup, like gold medal round. Oh, really? Anything, which you're not supposed to say publicly. They say that, but whatever, <laughs> we're going to do a competition. And so we were really close there. And that would have been really cool. And maybe it would have helped a little bit. But I've also seen breweries that, oh, yeah, we just won. And then two weeks later, they closed. You're like, okay, well, that didn't, why'd you waste 800 bucks? And yeah, no, and then, and then so that that it was 2017 in late or maybe it's August or so. I was sitting there and I was going over the numbers and I was I'm like, I don't see us lasting 12 months. Like we're not making headway on our debt. We're not growing. We've just put in, you know, we're we're 18 months into this new tap room that I was hoping would really help, and it, it did a little, but we weren't doing enough to warrant it. And so I decided, okay, well, I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to just slowly fade away. I'm going to tell people, hey, guys, if you want us to stick around, we need your support. Slash, we're open to investors. Slash, we're open to people to buy it because, you know, whatever. And so we worked up this kind of press release and we told people, like, hey, like, we're looking to sell or to get in. You know, you can't really say we're looking for investors because it's kind of a public offering. So there's some legal things going on there. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, like, we're definitely going to have to change to, to make it work. And everybody just kind of took it as, oh, they're going out of business. That sucks. And I'm like, well, no, that's not what that. Okay. Well, totally fucked up with that. That was in hindsight a mistake because then we started having less people show up because the people just thought we closed because they thought my post was about closing instead of about being honest with people. I'm like, hey, if you guys still want us around, we need help. And I don't know if that was, maybe it was how it was worded. Maybe that could still work. I don't, but I'm a very transparent person. My staff was always, to the best of my ability, you know, kind of kept the loop on how things were going. They knew kind of before that, you know, they, I think they, some of them took it the wrong way too. They thought we were imminently going to close. And so I poorly executed that. They all got new jobs within two months and I literally had a whole new staff. Really? So we, we saw a decline in sales because people thought we were closed. But then I started basically working half the tasting room hours and brewing. But it, we would have closed in two months if that happened had I not, had they not left because I wanted to guarantee them hours. And so like uh, my payroll got cut in half because they all left. And that actually kind of saved us for the next 12 months. And then I, you know, was just working 80 hours a week. So what I would, would have been a 
better business decision would have been not to make a PR blunder and would have been to unfortunately lay somebody off and take on those hours um, without losing revenue. And that probably would have been a safer bet that we would have gotten out of it and maybe stayed open. Still may have not, but I didn't, I, I tried something and it didn't work. Well, it sounds like the competition was playing a large role in that. The U.S. had kind of a lot of people, a lot of other breweries in the area, and just trying to get attention in that crowded market was a challenge. But do you think that would have changed? Like, In other words, what would you have done differently, or what do you think would have happened differently had the PR blender not uh, sped yeah. it up? We were constantly doing a certain number every month, and we were probably two or $3,000 below what we really needed to make. And that had been consistent for 18 months. Mm -hmm. And so the correct business decision would have just been to say, okay, well, now I have to cut payroll because that's an easy place to cut money. I can't cut rent. I can't cut ingredients. I can cut people and I can work their hours. And I didn't really want to do that because I love my employees so much and they were such an intrinsic part of the brand. There was all of a sudden, you know, some of the reason people would show up is because of my employees and then all of a sudden they're not there anymore, you know, so I didn't want to do that. I wanted to try something different. In hindsight, that's exactly what I should have done. And it's brutal and it sucks. And it's, uh, I see layoffs. I see people, Hey, we're going through this. We can't afford to have people here. So I a hundred percent get it when that happens, like from a business perspective, but as somebody who's also had it happen to me, like I've been laid off a couple times now because I can't afford it COVID or because some other reason that they didn't really explain, but uh, <laughs> I don't think they liked me, <laughs> but that's, it's gut wrenching for you as an employee. And so maybe I let my feelings get in the way of the business, but at the same time, I don't want to run a business that was cold hearted and like that. I don't want to work for businesses like that. I want to, you know, I want to have more humanity in it. So probably rewording it and being more clear or, you know, not doing it and, and having discussion with my employees about, Hey, so this is, you know, like I said, we've been struggling. I, unfortunately I have to cut 30 hours a week. Now I have to work the tasting room. So if, if there's somebody here who's willing to take that or move on, I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll help you get another job, you know, or just decide to pick somebody, which would have been tough. There may have been options because a couple of them were in school and like, and again, I'm good friends with half of them still. So that was brutal. Yeah. I think at that time, it was like 2018, Channel 10 ran an article and like the opening sentence just said, another San Diego craft beer company is closing its tasting room doors for good. So like, obviously it wasn't just you, like there were other people that were struggling and having an issue. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember all the other names, but you know, they, as you alluded to now, and I think I, everything I looked at back then is 150 to 160 something has been sort of the standard once you got there that when new ones open, old ones close. So clearly, it, I mean, it seems like there may have been a saturation point and the market share kind of pulled back and everyone's still struggling to stay alive, still kind of fighting for the same dollars. So I don't know. Like, Do you know of anyone who's just growing and killing it right now out there? Outside of where you work now, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> you know, you, you hear things and you hear the public talk about growth and, and this idea that oh they're growing so they must be just crushing it and printing money and then you, you you start talking to some of them at conferences and you know you're you're at the same sba loan table as they are and you're like why do you need a loan aren't you printing money mm -hmm. and then you're like no like we were 
we still have to have, you know, our day job to make sure our employees get paid. And it's like, but you've got like a 4.2 on untapped. <laughs> like, doesn't that mean instant money? And, and you, you start to get to understand the business a little bit more and the complexities of growing and scale and what it actually costs to run a brewery. And it, yeah, I mean, literally I, towards the end, I got incredibly jaded, incredibly. I was bitter, uh, angry, and I would see other people look like they're having success, but then I would also know, no, they're not having the success everybody thinks they're having. They just have deep pockets right now and are able to afford to get all that stuff. Because even if you go count how many beers go over their bar, I know what their rent is. I know what it, what they're paying their head brewer. Like, they're not making money. They're just, they're, and I'm not saying they're faking it. I'm saying that's part of growing a business over the first 10 mm-hmm. years is spending a lot of money. That's how it actually should be done in this industry. You start with $10 million, you blow it all, and then maybe in 15 years, it'd be worth $12 million. That's, I mean, just Aylesmith, like, they didn't make money for the first 13 years they're in business. Yeah, I just interviewed Dan from Garrison Brothers, a distillery. He's 15 years in, and he's, he's hoping this year he's going to make a profit. Yeah. Like, fuck. Yeah. So, <laughs> you hear those stories, and, and so once you get into it, and, and you, you, know, you make some friends, and you, you confide in each other, and you hear that, and you're just like, okay, this outside perception, I mean... The big news recently was about modern times. You know, COVID did not help, right? But when they went public, public, quote unquote, and they did their equity phrase with the public, they posted their financials. And I looked at them and I was like, they have a lot of debt. (laughs) They have almost unserviceable debt. They're making a lot of beer. And at that time, all the stories hadn't come out yet. Although... I think maybe the San Diego brewing scene behind the scenes kind of knew some of the shenanigans, but cause it was, a, they're, they're good old boys, you know, that kind of thing. But there's, there's a fraternity that doesn't talk about that stuff still. You, but you look at those numbers and I looked at them and I like, dude, they're, they need this million dollars or they might close. Like mm-hmm. seriously, like this is, this is untainable. Like they have to have an investment. They have to have a large money coming in to clear all this debt. And then all of a sudden they open like three more locations and it was like, somebody did give them money, but they, instead of servicing their debt, they just opened more locations in least like, spaces. It's, it's, yeah. it's about perception and you're playing this game. And, and now it's, it's obviously their scandal in the last year, COVID, none of that helped. And, and none of that was in their projections. So, you know, you can a little bit of self-sabotage and a little bit of bad luck doesn't help, but it's a lot trickier and a lot more dangerous playing in, in craft beer world, especially now where, yeah, now you're really competing for customers. I mean, I don't know many nano that are left in San Diego. Almost all the ones that I knew of in, in my area, they all closed really? for, for overwork, being overworked, not making enough money, the cost of business going up. Some of them were able to get out on their own terms. The two kids brewing company was down the street from me. They actually brewed some of our beer after we closed and they're really good friends of mine. I just saw them over the weekend, actually, and they were nano, three-barrel, seven-barrel fermenters doing their thing, making making good, award-winning beer, and uh, it was one of my favorite places to hang out and have a beer because the beer was good, and I love them, and they got to the point where their landlord's like, hey, so we're tripling your rent, basically, and they're like, we can't do that, and so they they uh, sold all their equipment, they they'd serviced all their debt instead of getting the unit next door like I wanted to, <laughs> they, they were thinking about it, and they just... They're like, nope, we're going to pay off all our debt. And they did and or got close enough. And then, but at the end, they're like, you know what? We can't do this anymore. We're not making nearly enough. We can't 
understands the, the finances don't make any sense to, to have $3 a square foot or whatever it was to, for their rent. And so they called it quits in fall of 2019. And about six months later, they're like, thank God. Because I don't know any, and, and a lot of other interviews closed around that time too. And I don't know if any of them would have survived COVID. Yeah, that would have been tough. So dependent on people coming in and having a beer. And nobody had really had canning. None of the ones I knew had deep pockets where you can just lean on, you know, the half million dollars you get sitting in the bank. Mm-hmm. So, or a very good sale of all of your assets that you built up on Wall Street. Well, I was going to ask you this question later, but since we walked into it, I'll go ahead and ask you now. So the industry undergoes these like changes of perception of what they think is the, the secret and the solution and the, you know, the, the way to unpack how to make money. And for a while, it was distribution. Then it was having a tasting room with the distribution, multiple channels. And now after COVID, distribution essentially is dead. And everybody I talk to says the only way to make money is to do it in your tasting room at home. And I personally don't buy it. I think that what they're saying is that you can't make it in distribution. So the closest we're going to get is at home. But at the end of the day, what we're doing is trying to play in the bar and restaurant space, which is a fucking hard space to make money. Just curious. I mean, do you think that that makes sense that if you were going to open a brewery from scratch today, would you not incorporate distribution, stay at home completely and still have confidence that you're going to be able to be successful? Yeah. I mean, I, right now it's my brewery. We just, Got a second location to have a second tap room. That's our plan is to just keep as much beer in, at home as possible. But I think distribution needs to be a, a, a component of everything you do because, again, we're playing with that perception of if I've got a brewery and it's just in my location, I'm limiting the amount of people who are going to see us, come to us. I mean, you can only do so much on Facebook, but there are more craft beer drinkers out in the world that will see you on a shelf, that'll see you in a store, that'll see you uh, at a bar. You got to play it. You got to be seen as in the market. And so if you take it as a, okay, yeah, we have a 2,000 barrel brewery here we can do in our space. Does that mean we're going to do 2,000 cans, you know, 2,000 barrels of cans and try to sell them at a terrible margin? No, but we can sell a couple hundred barrels of cans and draft beer to local bars and bottle shops to be to make sure that we have more market saturation. So turtling yourself and just trying to uh, is you have to kind of play in all those areas. There's a scale thing. Yeah. I mean, if you've built a $5 million brewery, you have to do distribution. There's no other, unless you well, you build a $5 million brewery and, and then you'd have to have like 12 tap rooms to, you know, so that's, that's another like $12 million. Modern time. You're gonna do it right. Especially in California. <laughs> You know, and spend a half million dollars to build a tap room. I mean, easy if you if you do it right. A mixed plan. Plus, then you have a bad month in your tap room. You've got some extra beer. You have channels now to get rid of that beer. Versus vice versa, we're like, hey, we're struggling in the marketplace, but we're doing okay at home. So we've got different, you know, sources of income. I think all that's um, you have to play a mixed a mixed game now, and so you have to think about customer experience and customer customer perception of the brand in the marketplace and at your own tasting room. Yeah. I, I would say if COVID taught us anything, it's that one channel is never going to work that you got to have some diversification. Just, you can't be heavy in any one of them, but without some diversification, you're just, you're vulnerable and something's going to happen. So yeah, you might yeah. be great for three years. You might be great for five years. Maybe you make a 10, but to create a truly long lasting legacy brand, you can't do that with just one, one stream. In my opinion, uh, no, no other business yeah. does. Yeah. You, you look at, 
expect, I mean, San Diego is this, California is a scene that I am most familiar with, but you look at the brands that have had the longest run that have a high quality product and that I think are probably more in the profit range and, and do well are ones that have a production facility and many brew pubs and tap rooms. Mm-hmm. And if one brew pub isn't working, it gets cut and they move it over here. If they've distributing really well in Arizona, but not in Nevada, well, we're not in Nevada anymore. We'll pull back and we'll put more into, you know, they've got options to do different things. You know, Pete Stewart, Carl Strauss, even Stone to a certain extent, although that's another cluster. I mean, you look at Sonoma and you look at their Richmond facility, which is doing well, actually. So it's like, it's, it's, and that's their model. And it seems to be more sustainable. And they've all been around almost 35 years now. This pizza port just recently got into distribution in the last half decade. They weren't doing it. It was all just their pubs. But then they're like, no, we're going to get into distribution. And now their beers on shelves all over California. And Carl Strauss was kind of the same way. It was for, they were doing distribution and they had a couple pubs. And then it was, no, we're going to do all these pubs. So they diversified. And I think that's the most stable way. And that's the way I would recommend anybody do it if you're looking long-term like that. That's also really big and it's a giant corporation. So if you're like, no, I just want to brew a little beer at home, you know, in my neighborhood or my community and, and not do a ton, uh, but take a look at what they do and that diversification and that, that having multiple avenues to sell your product, it's smart, just as you said. Well, back to your part, I'm just curious, like what... What did the kind of the wreckage look like for you when you walked away? Did you have, do you still have a lot of debt? Were you able to kind of get out of it without, you know, a lot of overhead still hanging out there? And I'll uh, preface that. I, I'm, there's little things that I refused to pay when I got out in September. And so, like, I'll pay like 500 bucks of something here and there. But I'm just like more out of spite because I'm mad that they were these things I had to fuck with. But at the end of the day, not that much money, but it was there for sure. 35 now. I was 30, 31. That was four or five years ago. Anyways, uh, and I've, I've got friends, older friends, and uh, my dad is an attorney. So, you know, we had conversations with bankruptcy attorneys, I had conversations with some of my friends who've gone through that. Uh, I have a really good friend who uh, went through bankruptcy because of uh, using the Hollywood movie industry. So, you know, you make $300,000 on a movie and then lose $300,000 on the next one. Then you lose half a million dollars in the movie and then make 750000 You know, like maybe not that much all the time, but his last big venture in Hollywood was he was part of a funding group that did a movie that didn't do well and that went through bankruptcy and he got pulled into it and he tried to pay it off for years and then eventually he's nope. And then he did it, filed bankruptcy himself. And his word to me is, I just wish I would have done it sooner. Now he owns a brewery in Detroit, and he's got one thing going for him. He bought a building. At least he'll have the real estate at the end, right? He has the real estate. (laughs) And that building, since they legalized growing and selling uh, recreational marijuana, has about tripled, quadrupled in price since he bought it three years ago. So if his brewery, which he's he's finally open and doing better now after COVID, but worst case scenario is somebody comes in and says, hey, I want to use this as a grow house. He'll actually make money off the whole deal. So he's in an okay place. Um, So because of that, because his advice and talking to him, we just, I just like, it was his $150,000, in various things between pop contracts and and. Landlord, I mean, I had it just signed a new lease that was worth like three hundred thousand dollars, and so like you know, some of it was was stuff that I could have just walked away from because it was all in the LLC and it wasn't a big deal. After talking, it was just easier just to 
soon as I gave the keys to the landlord, I walked down to the courthouse and immediately filed and got taken care of a couple months later. No big deal. I'm three years out of it. I haven't really actually had any negative consequences from having that. I haven't, had to, I haven't been able to buy a house because I live in California, so that may never happen, even if I had 800 credit score. That's just the reality. And I'm, I'm halfway to it being off my, I'm already halfway, you know, there to it being off my credit report anyway. So that was, that was the easiest solution was just to, to ditch it all. It'll all be gone by the time I'm 40. And if I can save up enough money for a down payment on a house in the next couple of years, then it could, you know, it shouldn't be a problem. It's scary for some people. I started when I was 25. I didn't have a house. I didn't have, I mean, I, I was able to keep my car. So it's not like I had everything taken away from me. My personal possessions, they don't take that stuff. That's unless you have, you know, a copious amount of jewelry or something. Uh, so it, it's, it's a lot, it, especially for somebody who's, you know, but if you've got, you got a house, you got a retirement fund, all that, then yeah, that can be really scary. And, and you got to think what's, what are the, uh, the benefits of paying off this debt over the next couple of years, you know, making a, a solution with those creditors that you have versus saying, okay, well, I'll just start over. And fortunately for me, starting over was, I'm literally back to where I was at 25. So, I mean, yeah, I, I lost a couple of years, but I considered I got a really cool education and had a really awesome experience for a good chunk of it. And so that, that has its own value that nobody can take away from me. Yeah, did a lot more cool shit than some people did from 25 to 30. So put it that way. One of the things that I dealt with big time and, and it was, I, I came in this industry pretty arrogant and there's no doubt about it. Like I had sold a successful company and, you know, had a successful exit and I was like, you know what, I'm going to build a brewery and I'm going to, it's going to be my artistic, you know, retirement plan. And I had, when it, when it really started to fail, I had some major depression issues and I, I kept them in check and I held it, but there were some times when it got really fucking black. I am actually glad had I closed in 2019 when I wrote my book, it would have been much worse. The fact that I was able to kind of turn some things around, you know, write a book out of it and turn it into some good helped me. But did you deal with that? Like just when you had to walk away and like just that having to accept failure almost, I guess, in a way. Yeah, no, that was, that was, it was, I got, it got, I got really depressed. Um, it got, it got pretty dark. Um, I knew it was coming. I saw it. Yeah, I'd see the monthly statement and go, oh, okay, we did exactly what we did last month. <laughs> you know, and you're just, you're just seeing this thing come. And I remember that uh, feeling, yeah. Yeah, and I'm just like, oh. And then I'm looking at, okay, who on my list of people I owe money to do I want to make sure it gets paid before I go under? That way, like, landlord, I think screw them. Bank, definitely screw them. Okay, local vendor, make sure they're paid. I, until the, I didn't miss a payment anywhere until like the last month. So I was just making minimum payments for those other ones. And, but like, I was like, I'll pay that one off. And so you see that. And then, but you just, you're just making these decisions. And so you're just like, I really wish I wasn't having to make these, these are, these are decisions of, of I'm wrapping things up. It's, it's, it's the end of something and something that you spend a lot of time and effort, you know, it's, some, it's dying. A part of you is dying, something that you built and that's hard to cope with. And then you're, you're sitting in a place where, I mean, you literally make alcohol. So it's, it, I can see how that can turn really bad for people very quickly. I mean, alcoholism is a, actually a huge problem in our industry that nobody talks about. So it, I had depression on top of that. I was okay. I didn't, it, it wasn't, a, I don't think I went too far down the alcoholism problem. I didn't, you know, drive drunk and yeah. get a deep eye and do that stuff. I know other people have. You weren't wet and reckless. It was not wet and reckless. No, fortunately that didn't, that didn't, but it was definitely a lot of 
you know, avoiding uh, responsibilities, pushing off, procrastinating, extreme anxiety, weight gain, that type of or weight loss. I mean, a little bit of both, uh, depending on the month. And all while I had had to move out of my apartment and back into my dad's house. And so, you know, I'm surrounded by people who care about me. So that that's helpful, you know, and, and my friends were still there. And so there, there was a lot of things that, that helps, but also at the same time, you know, it was pretty dark because I felt alone because I was the only one at the moment going through that. Mm-hmm. You know, none of my friends are going through it. They were maybe vicariously, but I wasn't talking to people. I don't have a shrink, you know, or not a psychiatrist. So I didn't have an outlet. So I just internalized it all, which was not healthy. And then it closed bankruptcy. Then that anxiety went away, which was great because the, the, the money part was gone. I didn't have to worry about bills and staffing and brewing. Although the, <laughs> the greatest twist of irony, the whole thing was, all right, guys, a year ago, I said we were in trouble and we might not make it and we needed investment or we needed a buyer. Well, we didn't make it. So we're closing in three weeks at the end of July. Had the best three weeks we ever had in my brewery. Wow. That just shows. I mean, you had a lot of people when you look online that were clearly yeah. supporters of the brewery. And so yeah. that gave them a chance to and say goodbye. It, it, it's one of those bittersweet things. Like, well, if you guys have just done this <laughs> for so much, we would have been fine, man. We would have gotten out of it. Oh, and and the, But the great part about that was because of that, I was, you know, financially able to do, you know, make sure I got vendors paid off who needed to get paid off and make those last payments so that I was up to date until that last moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the and biggest thing was make sure all my employees got paid. I mean, that, that was, I regularly, I mean, I don't, I don't think I made more than $15,000 in a year. I mean, in paying myself that I owned the brewery. So <laughs> I, I definitely got paid myself less than they did, but I, I, I would never want to put any of them in an, in an economic point. And that, that type of stress of, I've got people's, you know, livelihoods in nah, my hands. They're relying on uh, you. That's, that's, I mean, I, I felt as much as the brewery failed, my bigger failure that I blame myself for and that I, that I beat myself up on was now I've got, you know, four new people who are now unemployed. Mm-hmm. And I did that because I wasn't good enough. That eats at you. That eats at me. And maybe it doesn't eat at some people. Maybe some people are a little more cold-hearted. Probably like the guy at Home Depot who laid me off. Um, <laughs> you know, corporate or America. But that was that was personal to me. And that, that hurt. Like within a week or two, I was bartending at Society in San Diego. I always, I always cared for one of my former employees who left the year before he was there. So I just started working with him again, which is, which is awesome. And then I, I took a brewing job because I thought that was a great idea. Let's just get right back into it. Well, that was going to be my and next question is how long did it take before you brewed again? So. so I brewed the last batch of beer like a month before we closed. Cause I, I was, it was the cake is a lie that I remember beer. I'm like, I have to have this for the last day. I can't not like, I'm going to make sure I have that. We actually, I only had six or seven kegs with beer in it after our last day, which is great. We sold most of the beer. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, but they, uh, I, I took a job at another brewery in San Diego that their head brewer had just left. This is like, like the week of GABF too. And then of course they won two medals at GABF and that old head brewer. So I'm sitting there like, okay, cool. So I'm following a guy who just left, who just won two medals at GABF and okay. That's that's some standards to live up to, and I never <laughs> brewed on anything bigger than like a seven barrel, thirty barrel brew house. And then I go in and I find out there's no notes, there's no recipes, really. There's there's no SOPs, there's no ingredients worth anything. He would get what he needed in his head, do the beer, 
have somebody else deal with it, package it, whatever. It wasn't it wasn't a good relationship they had. The the business did did not have you know succession plans in for any of their employees. Hmm. It was all no. It was just it was. Oh, I walked out. I didn't end up getting paid. Really? So I had to, I had to get a lawyer to try to get what you owed me, and which he then we signed documents to non disclosure, which then he broke immediately. So I can talk about it, but won't say the name of the place because I don't, I don't mean anybody harm and he's not a bad dude it's just it was a bad situation I'm like I just got out of a dumpster fire right. straight into a straight into a, a dried up swimming pool dumpster fire like even bigger and so I, I walked out and I just bartended and that was good but then my wife because we weren't attached to San Diego anymore she decided to she wanted to go advance her career so we moved to Wichita so she can get, go back into zookeeping and yeah it took that was that was tricky because then I was unemployed for months, just sitting in a basement in the middle of the country with no friends. My wife, you know, worked early in the morning and then was home in the afternoon, but like she'd go to bed early and I was, you know, staying up till three in the morning playing video games with my friends on the West Coast <laughs> and had had terrible yeah, it was, and then so when but when I wasn't around somebody, I was just yeah, I was just in this pool of depression because my life had completely twist turned upside down. Thank you, Will Smith. Um, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> that was an old uh, reference. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. And, and then I did get a job, which was nice, uh, and brewing and we had an awesome team that I brewed with and that really helped get me out of it was back to what I enjoyed doing with people who had a similar mind. And I started slowly coming to grips with, my, I mean, I say failure and it, it was in a sense, but at the same time, that's not it. You can quantify failure as yes, it failed. But at the same time, I grew as a person, I gained skills. I had amazing experiences. I have people out there who still care about the product we made, care about the brand we had. I mean, like I said, we I had a couple of breweries brew some of our beer afterwards and we had people come out and I got to have conversations, see old customer, like all that stuff started happening. And so like, I started feeling like, okay, I did something. I made a mark. There are people who still think about it, still care about it. And that slowly took, it took almost 18 months for me to really get to a place where I felt better about the whole situation and my depression. And, and then obviously, you know, get a job right economically. But mm-hmm. Well, actually, I would like to get into kind of where you're at now and get an opportunity to plug those things. So let's take a super quick break and when we come back, let's let's do exactly that. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, well, welcome back. 
I had an interesting question for you. One of these topics that I did put in the second edition of my book, but it's also, I don't really talk to anybody about it. But you happen to have a unique and interesting position on this one. There's a brewery in Colorado called Odd 13. I'd never heard of them. You probably haven't either. But in 2017, they released a double IPA and they called it Intergalactic Juice something. Hunter or something like that. Gilman Brewing in California has a beer called Intergalactic Dad Pants. Tarantula Brewing has Intergalactic Planetary, which I think is one of the stupidest of all the intergalactic names. Because at least fucking don't make it obvious that you ripped off the Beastie Boys. And then a Canada Brewery did the same thing. <laughs> Benchtop in Virginia has a triple dry hopped Intergalactic Gong Rip, which is also a very stupid name in my opinion. But anyway, the point being, other people use that name. And that's a sort of a trademark thing. There's a huge deal in our industry, 9,000 breweries, intellectual property. If you'd stayed around, do you think you would have sent cease and desist to these guys? Yeah. Really? So we had a trademark lawyer who plays in that field it's mildly complicated though because we had a trademark for intergalactic brewing company uh-huh. as a tavern place of alcohol sales which is like a different um oh not class 32 trademarks yeah okay. than a class 32 we shared basically that mark with a brewery in florida that had intergalactic pale ale mm-hmm. and they had a mark for in class 32 we agreed to I and mean, the uspto was accepted our coexistence and then so we would, in those situations, have to file together the cease and desist. Hmm. So that last 12 months, I think one of those actually came out and I the brewery in Florida hit me up like, hey, we're going to go after these guys. Would you like to sign on? And I said, help us pay for the lawyer. And I'm like, hey, I'll be honest, uh, probably going out of business in the next 12 months. So I don't really care, but go for it. And they're like, understandable. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And and so I think, I don't know if they ended up doing it. I never saw it. But yeah, no, that's actually, I think all of my trademarks just expired like a year or so ago. And we talked about renewing them and stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I've, I've, like I said, I had some breweries, brew some beer and it's nice to nostalgia. But at the same time, I'm like, if I open a brewery, it's not going to be called Intergalactic Brewing Company again. Like that's, that's not what's going to happen. And, and because of that, because of trademark and the stress that I actually, I mean, I dealt with BJ's. I had to deal with another brewery. I had to deal with, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm this little guy making 300 barrels a year in San Diego. And, you know, my lawyer's talking to the lawyer, the corporate lawyer at BJ's Brewhouse. And I'm just like, uh, they can afford this. But I, like, I'm like, hey, don't spend more than six hours on it when I pay you $200 an hour. Like, come on. And he's like, well, it took seven. Right. What are you okay. doing? Yeah. Like, well, I mean, I'm not going to not pay you, I guess. And yeah, uh, I'm very aware of that. And actually, brewery I'm at right now is called Summer Fox Brewing Company. Well, when I got hired a year ago, it was called Amalgamation Brewing Company. I literally get I got hired. I looked up trademarks and I went, <laughs> "Hey, we don't have a trademark for this. This isn't gonna this is this isn't gonna end well." And three months later, it, it didn't end. And I'm, so I'm like, "Okay, well, saw that coming." Well, you learn, uh, I guess, one way or another. Yeah. So I, you know, I I I had already played in that area and knew how much pain in the butt that was. Uh, but fortunately, now this new name, we've got a trademark. It's we've researched. It's fine. We'll be good. Well, you know, moving forward. But that's yeah. I hated doing. I hate like I I emailed several places that were doing, especially uh, a couple other beers, beer names. So I'm like, hey man, like I have a trademark for that. Just stop making it, please. Yeah. I don't want to call my lawyer and have him send you a cease and desist. I don't want to take money from you, but. You got to stop making it because then I have to go down that route and I'm going to win because first of all, some of the names were like creative and <laughs> nobody had used them before. Like untapped tells me 
we were the first person to make a cake as a live beer. And I got a trademark for it right away. It, it was the fastest trademark I got through USPTO because there was not even anybody else similar yeah. in the whole database that had anything similar. I could have trademarked it everywhere up and down, even though it's from a video game that we stole from. <laughs> but so that, that one was very defensible. Uh, yes, that's it's a uh, it's an unpleasant part. And uh, like if I ever open a brewery, I'm just going to make names up, like just put words in. So and then just trademark them and be like clearly you stole that. Because I made that up. Yeah, that's I make. I'm, I'm, I've always wanted. I'm like, I'm just gonna make up my own language, and then it'll mean something, and we'll, it, yeah, whatever, something like that. Because yeah, nine thousand breweries. Oh yeah, it's only gonna get worse. I would imagine. Yeah, and everybody has aspirations of being the next big thing. So I found an article, and, and I think it was posted in 2017. I don't know if it uh, if you said it in 2017, but it's a quote from you, which is a little bit long, but I'm gonna read it anyway. So I think it's interesting. It says, uh, it's really kind of counterintuitive to a lot of industries where people are like, no trade secrets. We don't want to tell you anything. Like, we want you to fail because you're taking our market share. In this industry, we're all fighting the big guys. We're all fighting AB, InBev, Anheuser-Busch, Molson Coors, those guys for market share. Someday it'll happen, but that'll be a good day for all of us too because that means we're really big and awesome together. At some point, you have to go from being the rebels to being a democracy. I'm curious if you still believe that today. Yeah. No, I, I I think that's true. At some point, you have to. Yeah, there'll be a change. I, I think it's happening. I think now we're we're cannibalizing each other a little bit because we haven't made inroads on the big guys. They're still eighty percent, eighty five percent of the market share everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we're you go to the store and it's still twenty feet of Coors Light and Bud Light. It's funny they didn't we didn't take anybody's spot in the grocery stores. They just added more beer section, and then we fought over. Cool. It. And then we, so we're all fighting over it. So we're eating each other. And so maybe we've lost because it's difficult out there. And so maybe the easiest place to go is, hey, that craft brewery doesn't make, isn't as cool as us now. They're not making as good a milkshake hazy IPA as we are, you know. And meanwhile, all the big guys over there, and they've lost market share, of course. They're they're all down in barrelage and and sales because they have lost it to us. And then a lot of millennials are moving over to alternative alcohols, wine and whiskey and all that stuff. So. The whole segment's changing, but yeah, we need to we need to maybe get back on the horse of hey, let's maybe start thinking about brewing beers that actually compete with them because we don't right now. No, I mean, how many people do you know produce a thirty pack of Pilsner? Yeah, they no one. No, I know. I there's one in 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 Kansas that I knew of, which is friggin' awesome, and their thirty rack of beer was right next to Miller Lite in the store, and they were actually they were I don't know if they were, they weren't pushing Miller Lite out, but yeah. They were playing closer to that that's into the segment because their price point was right there. Their quality was was good, you know, because it was local. It was, it was like going to get younglings or something like that for those of us on the West Coast who don't get it all the time. <laughs> Fascination with that. But yeah, at some point, instead of fighting just to get in the shelf, now we've made the shelf. Now we've got to settle ourselves, and now we're competing at a different in a different way. I'd have to read that quote again because that, that sounds like me. <laughs> and I think it was true then. And and I think it can be true still a little bit, but I think it definitely has changed. Yeah, it's not it's not punk rock anymore. We're, you know, look at Green Day, man. They're not, you know, and all these other punk rock bands that, that you know, they sold out, quote, quote unquote, right? But, you know, they're doing reunion tours, you know, and, and it's things change sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And the, the, the days of, yeah, the, the rebels fighting the big empire, they're over. We're our own little our own little world now. And, yeah, politics is definitely getting more dramatic. Yeah, I've just seen that the numbers don't support, unfortunately, don't support the uh, the whole arm-in-arm arm against the big guys thing. That 
the market share per brewery has gone down to the point that it's it's squeezing out anyone's profitability simply because we're not yeah. gaining enough market share. So the the overall dollars per brewery is at a point that's just unsustainable. And then you take guys like you know Dougal Morgat, you've got Boston Beer, Yingling, Lion, these humongous guys, and and they've skewed those numbers. So when you really take them out and then divide up the dollars left for the little guys, there's so many breweries out there doing less than 500 barrels a year that just aren't they're not even close to profitability. And uh, just it sucks. But until we make some until something changes, which I don't have any reason to believe that it would, I would have to sort of respectfully disagree with what he said, <laughs> just in the sense that. I mean, I don't want someone to not open their business, but at the same time, every time they do, I can see who they're taking it from. You know, someone else is going to suffer. It sucks. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's probably more accurate. That one I would have probably needed to read like quote a little bit more. more <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think I think it's yeah. No, it's I mean, the initial idea with that was that and it may have also been a little bit na- obviously naive, but that whole idea that you know when we do do those things and work together, we can accomplish things. I still believe that is true but we're not working together and those things that we've decided we want to accomplish need to change. Those goals need to change. The perspective I was at at the time, I think it makes sense. The perspective we're sitting at now, it, no, it doesn't. Yeah. So I also, I've got a quote I want to play for you from somebody else, but uh, my, there, there are a lot of people in this world I don't like, which probably doesn't surprise you based on the last couple of hours we spent together. But my least favorite brewer in the state of Texas, maybe even the country, I said on one of my favorite guys' podcasts back in February 2019, a quote that just, it bugged me then and I can't seem to let it get out of my head. So, I'm going to play it for you and I'm just curious your thoughts on this one. You figured San Antonio is what? In the top 10 cities in the U.S. as far as population yeah, goes? Yeah, they're number 10 and most popular. to go ahead and we have maybe 14 breweries here. Yeah. So, it's like, and then you go to places like San Diego that has 300. Yeah. And it's like, no, we're not like anywhere near saturation at this point. No, you got- so, San Antonio and San Diego have a different number of breweries. And so, we are not saturated in San Antonio because we have 14 simply because San Diego has 160. He said 300 because he's a fucking moron. But yeah. <laughs> I, I think, so I'm not going to color your answer, but my question is, do you think it's that simple that you can just say, well, San Diego's got 150. So, if San Antonio's got 10%, we're clearly not saturated. No, because it's more about the consumer than it is about the number of breweries and how much is being produced. If well, you're in Kansas now? I'm in uh, Fresno. I was in Wichita. Oh, and, okay. and that that's that's this cause this is a much different. I mean, I'm in California and there's craft beer everywhere. But there's 16, 18 breweries here in Fresno. And our county population is 1 million people. And the city of Clovis and like the metro area is like 650, 700,000 people, maybe a little less. So you take the year like, oh, well, we're clearly not saturated because you can look at San Diego, you know, and, and I say yes, in a sense in 10, 20 years, yeah. like you got to build the consumers. You have to build the people who want to drink your product. If there's only 15,000 barrels of people drinking craft beer, then that's your saturation point. If they're drinking that beer at restaurants and breweries, then it's less. If they're just drinking craft beer at breweries, then it's, you know, and so it's, it's far more complicated than that. And it's far more, it's a, I think it's kind of wishful thinking that, Hey, yeah, there's more people here. They'll clearly drink beer. Like, have you met people from Texas? <laughs> I know friends who live there. One of the biggest like, Dos Equis it, markets in the world. Like, it's it's fine. They, they, we drink beer, but we definitely don't drink expensive craft yeah. beer. Yeah, and, and it doesn't mean it can't happen. It doesn't mean that it won't happen. It just means that is a larger uphill battle than I think you're thinking about. I think that's a little bit 
misguided. Um, <laughs> the brewery I was working on in Wichita was the second oldest brewery in Kansas, so 93 when it started. It was a brew pub, been a brew pub the whole time. Until six months before I got there, they had Miller Light and Coors Light on tap for 28 years. Or At the brew pub? Really? At the pub, because that's what people drank, and they sold tens of thousands of dollars of macro beer there every year. And then finally, the owner's like, if we're going to do that, because a couple other trendier breweries had opened and they're starting to be a scene. And he's like, we're going to do this beer thing. We got to do this beer thing. And so we're done with other people's beer. And I commend him for that because that's a, that's a stand. I mean, he literally lost money doing that. Mm-hmm. We didn't make it up in craft beer sales. Our profit margin got better, but they didn't do as much beer sales. Also, we had a nightclub that we closed. So that was probably actually what it was, but. Well, it's interesting, though, what you're saying essentially is that the guy who was drinking Miller Lite said, fuck you, he left, and he was not replaced by a guy drinking your local lager or your version of lager. We didn't have a lager, actually, so that Mm. we didn't replace it with anything until like a couple months into when I was working. I'm like, we need to replace that if we, you know, Uh, so we did. But those, the people who were drinking it, they'd gone, they'd left. The people who stayed were the ones who had been drinking our beer for 20 years, and then we started seeing an influx of younger clients who were more interested in craft products mm-hmm. and we're full bar everything so uh, we started doing craft cocktails and all this stuff and and we were fine we, i mean COVID sucked but beyond that it was incredibly profitable so it was a decision you can make yeah i'll take forty thousand dollar hit no big deal we do 3.2 million dollars a year to restructure ourselves to be what the market's going towards which is more craft oriented stuff yeah i don't i don't see that as fair comparison yeah so let's talk about your career in beer what are you the most proud of? Probably the people who I've gotten into the industry. So I hired people with no experience because I like them. And I like their attitude. I like their work ethic. And then they became really amazing industry people who have worked for really cool breweries, have made an impact, whether that's through, you know, uh, pink boots, taking leading leadership roles in that sense, or just becoming really excellent professionals who I respect in that regard. Being a mentor is really as, as, as much as I have to give whether, you know, and then we can all debate about that, but <laughs> seeing people take anything that I, I, I can help them with and then grow and go beyond that. I take immense pride from that. And I like doing that probably the most of anything. I mean, if there, if, if I ever find myself in it, you know, if there's more brewing programs throughout the world uh, or, you know, the United States at least at a, college level and I find myself in that position I'd, I'd love that that would be really cool yeah that's cool also an answer I haven't gotten for so from with your experience I'm curious how have you overcome burnout in this industry everyone does it differently and unfortunately many of us do it with alcohol but I think it, for me last couple of years it's just been forcing myself to have more work-life balance I mean it's been nice that I've been you know getting a paycheck and I work <laughs> 40 45 hours a week and that's you know, that's, I don't take that for granted because I didn't have that when I owned my own place and making sure that I spend time doing the other things that make me happy and not just fully focus on, on this world and this job. Fortunate to have awesome wife. I got great friends. I don't see enough of them because I live in a different part of the state now or country at one point. But all of that, because I didn't engage with that as, as much as I could, especially that last year and that, you know, a little bit after that, I've definitely grown as a person to appreciate that more. And when I do, then I find it easier to come into work and and do my job. It also helps being paid, (laughs) you know, knowing I'm getting compensated fairly for my time really helps. And unfortunately, a lot of people are underpaid in this industry and that really affects burnout. Um, They're also overworked because, okay, I can pay you a decent living, but you're going to be working two jobs. It's like, okay, well, 
how about you pay me a decent living and you hire another person to pay them a decent living to do the two jobs? Well, it just doesn't happen mm-hmm. uh, as often as it should. That definitely is hurting people and will hurt people. And I'm, my hope is that if we have some consolidation, that means more market share opens up, which means there'll be more higher paying jobs because people will be a little more successful because they got a little more production. So as much as I was the nano brewer that maybe took somebody's job, now I'm the other guy, you know. <laughs> right. Hey, maybe don't start a brewery. <laughs> let me let me and my team make a decent living. I don't know. It's selfish, maybe, but well, people take for granted like how much that paycheck matters, especially when we get into you know beer ownership. You always think it's you know rich business owner, right? You own a business, you're rich. But even now, it's been six months, almost seven months. Like I'll go out to dinner with my wife to a nice restaurant where I don't even look at you know the prices on the menu, or whatever. It doesn't matter. And I'm just like, I forgot what that felt like because we would still go out and eat and go to nice places, but we'd feel guilty every single time because we really couldn't afford it, but we were still going to do it. And now that I don't have to really think about it, that's, it allows a balance. And so I'm almost able to look at a beer again and be like, Hey, let's, let's talk. Let's, uh, let's have an evening. Whereas for years, especially at the end, I was, I was really burned out on beer in general. I was mad at it, which was my fault, not its fault. But question, do you still... Truly, are you as passionate about beer off the clock as you were when you started the brewery? No, no. Um, I do enjoy having a pint, but I find myself being less like gung ho, I would say, about new things and about trends. And like when it's fresh and new, you're just very excited and you want to try as many things as possible and you want to you want to have the best and you want to you seek things that people are talking about. And now it's just like, uh, you know, my wife went to the store. They said, hey, I'm at. I'm at the liquor store. You know, I'm grabbing some six pack. Do you want anything? I'm just like, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> and like, oh, you know what? If there's, if like, if they got Firestone Lager, I'll take that. Like, that's I know that's a good beer. I'll drink. I'll enjoy that. You know, or if there's a blonde somebody made, like that's fine. I just I'll go home. I'll have a beer, and it's nice. And, it, and it, but it's also changed too because now I can just I can just sit there have a beer watching a game or TV or playing some video games or working on a hobby or something, and it just it's just a beer, and it's just part of me enjoying those other things and maybe helping it ideally and so it's definitely i'm not analyzing and i'm not being like oh i can make one just as good as this you know it's like or why does this one have the market share and i don't yeah Yeah, exactly why and i'd be jealous or be you know like i mean there's definitely moments there's other breweries in san diego that pop up and then all of a sudden they're doing really really well and i'm just like have their beer and i'm just like yeah these guys now the beer's good like come on (laughs) you know i'll be grumpy old man and i'm 28 years old you know it's like oh, that's that's not cool man you need to get over that and I, I have to a certain extent you know i mean i'll give somebody my professional opinion or i'll have a professional opinion about somebody's beer quality or you know their atmosphere or whatever like that but it's now more along lines of like i'm gonna go and i'm gonna enjoy myself even if the beer isn't that great or the service was kind of was like no I'm, I'm not gonna let that you know impact me I'm just going to enjoy why I'm here, which is usually to hang out with some friends or something like that. And all that stuff I'll take a note of maybe if, if it matters, if somebody asks me, I'll say something. I'm not as, I'm not as judgy as I was. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody asked me to be, and then, then I can be, I'll be, I'll, I, I can rail. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> it's still there. It just, I just, I, it, it's toxic. It just, it makes me feel bad. Like, cause I'm in a negative spot. And mm-hmm. so I, try to see more positives and that's that was part of getting out of my depression was trying to focus and feel that way yeah no i agree and i think it, it's helped it's helped how i like beer because i just i mean i've always just liked beer but like now it's you know i yeah i'm less i'm less uh i'm less critical less judgy and i can just enjoy it which i, I appreciate 
Uh, the last couple of times I went out to a bar, I had a, a Lone Star or, or Lone Stars, uh, plural, which is not a great beer, but it's easy to drink. It's cheap as shit. It, I didn't think about the beer. I thought about the company. Um, I didn't, it did, I wasn't drunk at the end and I was like, man, I should probably do this more often when I drink beer as opposed to the, you know, how, how much ABV can I get? I went up pretty fucked yeah. up and we're comparing the beer. I don't, that can be fun in its place, but it shouldn't be my everyday. And so I, you know, even now I'm 45, I'm still growing up, I guess. But so tell us what you're doing now. Tell the brewery you're at. Yeah. The, the brewery is Summer Fox Brewing Company. We're in Fresno. It's a couple years old. They started. I got. I started here a year ago after moving to Fresno. I worked at another production facility for a couple months. Was uh, laid off because there was like third round of COVID spike, and they're like, "Well, we don't need to brew beer right now because we have not selling it to anybody." So I'm like, "I get it." And then, but this job became available, so I, I came over here. They've been around since December of 19. So they basically opened, and three months later, shut down for like nine months. That sucks. Um, absolutely that sucks. insane. Uh, lost two brewers during that whole COVID thing just because that's, that's, I mean, you can't pay somebody to brew and you, you know, just hired them weeks before and you're like, wait, we're going to close. Like, you know, we didn't really have a relationship and, you know, it, it's all complicated, but came on a year ago where, you know, we have, we had to have a kitchen. So we have guests, we had like 24 taps and 20 of them were guest taps and four of them were some beers that were brewed by a, a brewer who came in on contract. It's basically starting from scratch because the beers that were brewed two years ago or nobody remembers. <laughs> They barely even were checked in on untapped. Our market here is we're in the suburbs of northwest Fresno. There's it's a beer island as far as craft beer goes, and so the most people come in. You know, there we have a blonde, a pilsner, and a and a gold nail. So all light beer, and those are like three of our top five. Hmm. You know, so it's it's really it's different. It's a different. Hazy IPA is still our number one though. So of course, right? We're not crazy, you know. <laughs> Got to drink that haze, but. It's it's definitely a it's definitely a different experience because yeah, it's California, but it, it's a lot more like Wichita. It's rural agriculture a little bit. You know, it's more conservative. It's not as trendy as far as the beer goes. There's a couple of breweries here that are, have become very popular in the last year, but even if you go in there, it, it's not 12 IPAs. <laughs> it's there's actually like other beers on. It's great. I love it. And so, so yeah, we're just, we're plugging along. We just, uh, we got another spot. So there's Clovis and Fresno are next to each other, the two cities. And so they're we're about 30 minutes apart in the same metro. And so we're in the northwest side of Fresno in the Central Valley, California, and then putting a second tap room. So we're going that kind of, you know, as much retail as possible. We just brought in a, a sales guy who's going to help us GM and do some outside sales. He's been in the industry for decades. So we got, you know, some more experience coming in, which I'm really excited about to get our beer out there a little bit more. You know, we're not really going to do cans. We're just kind of focused on some draft and in-house draft and, and just play with that and, and get that as functional and grow deep as possible in our, in our market. Cause I think that makes the most sense right now. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I definitely appreciate you sharing the story with us. I know obviously you're on the road to recovery and, you know, doing new things and on your own. But I do think that a lot of what you've shared is a great message for people who are considering open a brewery and are just kind of showing how that can go. And, and I, I truly believe how it will go for most people who do it at the nano level these days. So I appreciate you opening up your brain and letting those emotions come out. Where, where can we find this new brewery at? Uh, is it social medias online? Yeah, we've got, we've got all the social medias. Uh, maybe, I don't know. It's Summer Fox brewing.com uh summer fox beer at uh twitter and i oh, know we're not on twitter because twitter's for old people i think <laughs> that's what they say now 
I still use Twitter. I actually probably use Twitter more than I use Instagram. And Instagram and, and Facebook. And yeah, if you're ever in the, the greater, if you're driving on the 99 in California, we're, we're a mile off of it. So come in and, and have a pint. Yeah. Say hi. I'm usually here until six or seven. So usually hanging out. Well, I definitely wish you the best. And uh, I'm looking forward to one day coming across and meeting you. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Anytime. Right. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. No way I'm letting you off the hook today without at least a sincere thanks for sticking around and supporting this podcast. While the content here can be emotional at times, I truly love sharing these stories and making a difference in the lives of my guests and in yours. If you appreciate what I'm doing, please tell a friend about the podcast or the book, which is available on Amazon and makes at least as good a gift as it does a paperweight. I also want to encourage your feedback. Find me on socials, email me freeplaykelly at gmail.com or send a carrier pigeon if you think that'll work. And please, maybe most importantly, Make it a point to do one thing today to make your life and career better and to always remember that mistakes are just weakness leaving your business. Free play. Media.